Welcome to For the Love of Yoga, the podcast series where we explore yoga, Vedanta, Tantra, and other schools of spiritual philosophy so that we might live more meaningful lives. For more episodes of For the Love of Yoga, visit us at patreon.com slash yoga with Nish. May these words serve you. Okay, so welcome. It's good to see you all today. And we're going to be talking, as we mentioned in the opening of today's class, about free will. Do you have any? And hello, Roxanne, welcome. And is there a benefit to dispelling this illusion of free will? So is it helpful to think that you have free will? Or is it better to accept that you are a completely determined being? So we'll investigate a few arguments for determinism meaning the lack of free will, and consider how the yoga philosophy deals with that. Um, before we do that, though, let's pause, back up a little bit, and consider why it's worthwhile investigating these perceptual errors. So remember, in the Upanishadic period, which is around 3800 BCE in the Indus Sarasvati Valley, the earliest philosophers of India, known as rishis, the hearers of truth, or the ones who knew or abided by truth, these rishis often depicted the spiritual quest as a matter of correcting perception. Uh, his, he put a $20,000 bet on a company named A $3,000 bet? What do you know? <laughs> I uh, hope he wins that bet. Send a prayer out to the uh, better over there. <laughs> but uh, the fundamental quest of the Upanishadic sages was to correct a misperception, to solve an error in judgment. Hello, Lauren. Welcome. This error, while innocent, has major repercussions. So let's go back to the Upanishadic definition of what it means to be enlightened. And the phrase that they used back then was Brahma Jnana, which means knowledge of Brahman, your true identity. Another word for it is Atma Bodha, which means uh, realization of self. And when this happened, you would get something that you didn't have before, which is you would get Vidya. Vidya means knowledge. And that root word V is the same as I mentioned last week, uh, the word in video. So in the English word video, that V, can you guess what it means? That verb V, it's also in vision. You know, it's funny, but that verb V means to see, unsurprisingly. So vidya, video, vision, viveka to mean to discern, all of these um, are the ways in which the Upanishadic seers defined um, the spiritual perfection, the moment of spiritual perfection. So you would change the way you saw the world. And that, by consequence, would change the actual world. <laughs> okay. So what then is the spiritual quest, if not the process of adding vidya or knowledge where there isn't any? So... Avidya, as you well know in the Yoga Sutra, is known as the root of all suffering. It's the ultimate um, root of any kind of sorrow in the world. And that avidya is lack of knowledge. So avidya means ignorance, the lack of knowledge. Okay. So the Upanishadic seers framed suffering, the 
predicament of life as a lack of knowledge, as an error. The Buddha would, a couple of centuries later, phrase it as desire. In the Buddha's phrase, desire or karma was the root cause of your suffering. Even here, I want to make a new point this week. We talk about the Buddha's articulation of suffering a lot, but this week I want to make a new point. So the Buddha um, was one of the first few people to point out that suffering is a thing, as you well know. Um, and he has a reputation for being a bit of a party pooper. You know, he'll sit down next to you as you're drinking beer, watching the Super Bowl, and a whisper in the air. And he's like, you probably don't know it, but you're totally suffering, bro. And you're like, excuse me? And then he would show you in a three-hour lecture with 12 steps of why you reincarnated, four levels of argumentation as to why you suffer, three different kinds of suffering, the suffering of suffering, which is when you have physical pain, political oppression, stuff that you already know is suffering. But then he would say, now there's the suffering of change, which is the suffering that you feel living in a world of impermanence, anithyam, a world of uh, transience. And finally, there's the suffering of not knowing what you really are, the suffering of anatman, of mistaking the mind and body to be what you are, but then at the end of the day, not really being satisfied with that. So the Buddha went to great lengths to prove that you suffer. <laughs> now, he said the root of all of that suffering was that you desire things in the world. But deeper than that, you desire permanence in a world that is inherently impermanent. You know, so your suffering comes from knowing that the body will die, knowing that the mind, along with its personality contents, will end. But that fear is something that you spend your entire life running away from. So the Buddha's first revelation was that sickness, old age, and death were things that happened to everybody as much as you didn't want to believe that. You know, so as much as you want to put the old folks home away, uh, old people in the old folks home, the dead people away, uh, you don't want to look at sickness. And until recently, we've been very good at avoiding sickness um, as a concept. And death is a taboo to talk about, you know. God forbid they say even the word the person died. There's always some weird euphemism like passed on or passed away, you know. <laughs> And except for the open casket funerals, like oftentimes you don't see the body. You know, in India, it's very dramatic. Along the Ganges, Ganga, you can see bodies burning. You know, so you can watch before your very eyes the way that the skin collapses into bone, into fat, and you can watch the process whereby the body turns to ash. You know, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. That whole thing was a visceral experience for many people in this period of India. Uh, but even in this period, there was great denial that these were things. So the Buddha, Buddha pointed those things out and he wasn't a pessimist insofar as he tried to solve it, solved it and said that there is a way out of this suffering. There is a way out of sickness, a way out of death, a way out of old age. More importantly, there's a way out of seeing those things as, the, as suffering. So in the Buddha sense, desire was what caused your suffering. You desire to be in a body. And when that body dies, you feel pain. You desire to aggrandize the ego, yet nothing can ever satisfy you, no matter how much you uh, collect accolades and name and fame. Uh, you desire stuff like a lover, like some money, like a possession, but you spend so much time and struggle trying to obtain those things. And even when you do, by some miracle, obtain them, uh, they fade away. They decay. They change. The stuff changes. 
the partner was not what you expected him to be. The object of your desire was not fulfilling you the way that it was supposed to because you changed. So this is the drama that most people find themselves in. That word desire though, we must investigate the yogic word for it, which is raga. Raga is also the name of a musical scale in Indian Carnatic music, very poetic. But raga means desire, but it actually means literally something else. So while it does get translated often as attachment or desire, that's not what the Sanskrit actually says. You know, so kama is desire. Raga means to color or to distort. So that word raga means to add color onto something. Now, a lot of yogis and gurus like to use the example of jaundice. As long as you have a jaundiced eye, the world looks yellow. It's not that the world was actually yellow or orange. It's just that your perceptual mechanism only filters it as such for you. And so this raga, this coloring, that's what the Buddha was pointing at. The Buddha was saying that as long as you see the world in the way that you're seeing it now, there will be suffering for you. So when you practice these techniques, all it does is dispel that framework, that way of seeing the world. And we can get even more radical. So there are essentially seven ways to see the world. Um, and this is borrowing from Tantra and the Kundalini yoga traditions, you know, Hatha yoga. But there are seven ways to see the world. Some people see the world entirely in terms of the root chakra or the muladhara. And that means they see the world entirely in terms of security, safety, and fear. So you can think of this as they are holding a prism to their eyes and the white light of reality gets distorted into a specific red color. You know, why is the muladhara considered a red color? I mean, if you're clairvoyant, like sometimes you perceive it to be red, but also because red has the longest wavelength and the lowest frequency, you know, so it's the densest of all the uh, colors. So most people um, get trapped in this kaleidoscope red image, meaning when they look around, they don't see reality as it is. They see reality in terms of their own safety, security, um, and uh, grounding needs. You know, so when they enter into a relationship, they're not seeing the person that's actually there. What they're seeing is how much can that person make me feel secure? You know, how much safety can I get from these jobs? This is someone who might put off their dream in order to get security first. You know, I'll be a, I don't know, stockbroker for the next 20 years. And then, then I'll be a jazz musician. You know, once I've got enough money in the bank, then I'll play trombone. And we all know how those stories go, right? Old as time. Trombone is in the attic, gets dusty, forgotten about. Anyway, there are many who see the world entirely in terms of the desire for power, sorry, the desire for security and safety. So think of this as a raga in the sense that it colors the world in terms of those desires. And so what you see is not the actual world. It's a phantom world of threats to your safety. And you feel a lot of fear. Your actions are motivated by that fear. Okay, so let's say you manage to um, find some security or something. Usually, you start to see the world now in a more rarefied way. And we can call that the second chakra or svadhisthana orientation to life. So someone with this orientation, call it the yellow lens. The kaleidoscope shifted a bit 
Orange, my bad. Kaleidoscope shifted a bit and you see an orange now in the world in front of you. This is where you see the world in terms of pleasure. You know, so now you're relating to someone and what you're thinking is, how much pleasure can this person give me? You know, maybe you're looking at the world in terms of lust, where you're looking at um, physical features and um, personality traits that can titillate your arousal, or you're looking at the world in terms of what's pleasurable, like, let me have that chocolate cake now, or let me sip that margarita, or whatever it is that can titillate the senses. This even applies to intellectual titillation. You know, so looking for concepts or knowledge that can uh, titillate your intellect. So any kind of titillation, stimulation in a pleasure framework, you can see as this raga. Now, some people see the world in terms of a different raga, a yellow or a Manipura, third chakra raga, where the world seems to them in terms of power alone. So every relationship becomes who's more powerful? Am I you know, the leader here? Am I in power? Uh, am I getting name, fame, accolades, whatever. So, and, and most people, by the way, don't see the world discreetly in any of these three categories that I just mentioned. It's usually an amalgamation of all three, you know? So security and safety gets mixed in with pleasure and all of that gets mixed in with power. Take any romantic relationship and you can see that all of these three dimensions are in flux all the time. You know, so most of our suffering, the Buddha says, comes from that raga. So I'm now describing the Buddha in terms of Tantra, in terms of Kundalini uh, Hatha Yoga, which is to describe the Buddha's desire in these energetic ways. You know, so you're seeing the world as red, orange, or yellow. It's in fact, none of those things. This is why we must correct perceptual errors. So as long as you see the world as a place where you are separate from everything around you, as long as you see the world as uh, a world of time, where there is a past, present, and future, and finally, as long as you see yourself as a free agent, you suffer. You're in the matrix, so to speak. So that's why it helps to correct these perceptual errors. So we'll pick up from where we left off last week. Quick recap. The first one was the illusion of separation. And I gave you five arguments as to why uh, separation is not a thing. Here, I must make my disclaimer. Arguments alone are not enough to give you a perceptual shift. Hearing these arguments is the first step towards getting that perceptual shift. You need to wrestle with it, think about it, and most importantly, you need to internalize it. And that only happens through deep meditation. You know, so the three-step process for this kind of uh, philosophy is shravana, you listen to the arguments first. Mananas, you think about the arguments, you debate it internally. And finally, nididhyasana, which is you realize it. It's true for you. It's not just true because you read it in a book or heard it in a talk. It's actually true. So this is the difference between saying we're all one, man, and actually knowing that we are all one. In the former case, the person, you know, he's uh, on acid at Coachella, easy to say we're all one. On the drive home, someone cuts them off in traffic and then all that we are all oneness goes away. They're cussing and swearing. <laughs> but the experience of we are all one is a felt reality that permanently alters the way you see everything. 
So I'll give you the arguments and ultimately I hope that you will stop me at any time to debate me. Because remember, it's only true if it's true for you. So if there's any resistance in you to the arguments, that's where the work is. You know, so definitely stop and say that doesn't sound true or that doesn't work for me, something like that. Okay. Um, Lyric does a really great job of this. I love Lyric's questions in the end. I'm always most excited <laughs> for um, Okay. So the illusion of separation, we did it on five levels and just a quick uh, recap of all of those things. They'll go from the most obvious to the most subtle. So the first argument is like the weakest and then we'll get to the, the deeper ones. So the first argument is, I call it vibes, the vibes argument, an argument for vibes. So now you might feel yourself as separate from the world around you. Like you're over here and they're over there. Um, yet you still notice that when you, you know, are at Christmas dinner, one person being sour causes everyone else in the room to be sour. You know, like Johnny, the cousin doesn't even need to say anything. The very fact that he's being a little bitch right now, everybody feels that and everybody feels dissatisfied with it. So there's something going on that seems to relate everyone on an emotional level. The second level of this argument is that there seems to be a cultural vibe that everybody is affected by. So we're like in this field of cultural software that influences what we think, how we talk, and for historical purposes, the kind of art and science that we do. You know, so a study of art will show you that art is usually the product of its time. You know, there's usually some correlation between an intellectual movement and an artistic movement and a cultural movement. So that's my argument from vibes, you know, at least on this level, you can see that our separation is not so discreet. There is something going on between the two of us or and all of us, you know. So what is that? Now, the second argument, there is something known as mirror neurons that uh, account for our empathy. So this is why we get off watching other people do stuff, because as we watch them do it, our mirror neurons, a function in our neurochemistry, creates a feeling that we ourselves are doing it. You know, so it's, it's a miraculous idea that you can look at someone and completely feel as if their feelings were your own. And some of us are better at this than others. You know, we call them empaths in today's culture. But this phenomena shows you that we're less discreet than we might think. Okay, now we get more, uh, more uh, esoteric. You know, so thus far, we've shown that people are closer than we might think. Now, let's show that all things are closer to the third argument is quantum entanglement. So in quantum mechanics, there's the idea that if you take a particle and you split it and you take the two opposite ends to different parts of the room, whatever you do to one end will happen to the other two. So if you change the spin or charge of this particle, this half will change too. Nobody knows why. <laughs> there's some mysterious link between the two particles. They are quantum entangled, so to speak. And now in new quantum mechanics theories, like superstring theory, the idea is that they aren't discrete particles at all. It's one mesh of vibration. And what happens to this vibration vibrates along Charlotte's web and affects the other part of the vibration, you know? So that's the quantum mechanics argument. The fourth one is the same stuff theory. This is mostly from Einstein's unified field, but it's the idea that we're all made of the same stuff. You've heard it in a cheesy Instagram uh, caption, you know, about Carl Sagan probably pointing out that you are made of the same stuff that stars are made of. Yes, it's that same argument, that same cheesy argument that we love so much. I love it to death. Um, 
Yeah, you know, Lyric, that's a really good question. If someone's an empath and feels what others are feeling, yet also recognize that everything is con- co- uh, connected, how can they ever recognize a feeling is their own? That's exactly what I'm trying to um, dissolve here, Lyric. The feeling that anything is your own, <laughs> you know? The setting up of boundaries between you and the world is what I'm trying to dissolve now. So yeah, you feel it all as one being, you know? It's it's the bodhisattva's taking on of the suffering of the universe. You know, it's, it's heavy stuff, uh, but we'll talk about why suffering is not any more suffering for the bodhisattva. Suffering only happens insofar as you see these feelings as mine and those as yours. This is my body and that's your energy over there. You know? So same stuff theory says, no, no, no. You're made of this sheet of energy. If you want to call it atoms, sure, call it atoms. You know, um, And someone else is made of atoms too. But between you and that person, there is a continuous sheet of atoms that connects you to them. So at any given time, you are always touching everyone else. You know, it's a little weird to say, but you are always in contact, at least in an indirect way, if you like to use that word, with everyone else through the medium in which you all exist. You know, so these are some kind of modern arguments. The fifth argument is uh, is a yoga argument. It's from Tantra and it's called Abhasa theory. And this is an important one for today's discussion. In fact, the most important one. So Abhasa theory is the idea that everything you see does not objectively exist in the world, independent of your seeing of it. So that's key. You can never prove the independent existence of any object separate from its observer. This is not an unknown idea to the West. Heisenberg and Schrodinger showed it in math. And uh, the philosopher Bishop Berkeley in his phenomenalist school also said this. So it's not that crazy an idea, but the idea is generally along the lines of the world that you see is not the world that is there. It is a world that you co-create between what is there and what you superimpose onto it. So for those of you who are there on Thursday night, we talked a lot about superimposition. The idea that you dress up what you see in front of you with your own preconceived notions. How much do I like it? How much is it useful for me? So in Abhasa theory, I want to use the piece of the ragas. So what raga are you operating on from the first three ragas that we've described? The red vision, orange vision, or yellow vision. These change what you actually see. So this idea says there is no world out there and a world in here. They are intrinsically linked. They are two sides to the same coin. And now we're interested in what the substance of that coin is. You know, how is the external and internal world linked? You know? So maybe the force of this argument, like it's a very subtle argument um, and maybe you're not feeling it yet, you know? Um, and to feel it, to feel the argument is when there's a feeling inside you. It's almost an eerie uh, feeling like the hairs on the back of your neck stand up kind of feeling where you no longer feel so certain that there is a world out there and that you're over here, you know? So if that feeling is not yet arising, then we need more mananas, you know, more contemplation. So definitely after class, we'll, we'll look at these arguments some more. I just wanted to recap it so we can get into the free will stuff. This is all necessary. 
And I won't really do the illusion of time since we talked about it last week, but this is all necessary precursors to this idea of free will. So the question is, do you have it? I mean, it certainly feels like you do. It seems like you do. I mean, after all, didn't you choose to come here? Didn't you like click on the Zoom link? Um, and aren't you choosing to stay, you know, like keeping your camera on, turning your camera off, standing up to get a cup of tea? This tea that I'm sipping now, I chose to do it. Isn't that an act? So thus far, we've shown that what we feel or see might not actually be what's going on. So just because we feel or see that we're doing stuff might not actually mean that we are, you know? So let's look at some of the arguments as to why this impression that we're doing stuff is faulty. So there are, um, you know, three arguments generally in the world of Western philosophy in the school of determinism that they use. Um, they're all quite fancy. I don't really care for most of them. There's like this linguistic determinism argument where it's like any statement you make will either be true or false in the future. So it's determined in that sense, very technical and weird argument. Then there's causal determinism. The idea that there was a big bang and every moment in the universe was preceded by some moment before it. So electrons and are all colliding. And now here you are, you are part of that causal chain. You know, so that's kind of a fancy argument from causality. I don't really care about that one so much either. I'm more interested in psychological determinism. That's the one that's interesting for yoga. Now, psychological determinism says the only reason you're reaching for Kashi Golin chocolate flavored cereal, that's my favorite cereal, as opposed to Kashi Golin strawberry flavored cereal, which I never buy, is because of a bunch of previous experiences that have conditioned you to make that choice right now. So while it seems like you are choosing, you're not actually choosing. You know, on some level, advertising recognizes this. So the multi-billion dollar advertising industry is devoted to getting you to make choices that you feel you are making, but actually they are making, right? <laughs> so on one level, there's all that. Um, but the yogic opinion here is that as part of your cognitive faculty, there exists a dimension known as the samskaras or the impressions left by previous experiences. In the Buddha's anatomy, the pancha skanda, samskara is one of your skandhas, one of your bodies. And samskara is the net force of all previous impressions acting on you at this one moment. And the idea of samskaras actually stretches back to previous births as well. Okay, those of you who were here last Monday and we talked about B theory of time and how there's no past and future, you have to give me some, uh, excuse me for using the word previous. I know we've established by now that there are no past lives. All the lives are being lived in the same time. That's why Aang can access all the other avatars, you know, and you can too through meditation. Um, yes, question. I feel free will only exists for us when we can dissolve our karma and overcome these compulsions and conditioning. Yes, good. Uh, uh, Bijan, Bijan, I hope I'm saying that right. C'est français, bijou? No? <laughs> Thank you. Allons-y, allons-y. 
Okay, Aniva, we continue, my French friend. Let's go to um, exactly what you said. So my claim to you is going to be a little counterintuitive. I'm going to say that you are not free insofar as there are samskaras acting on you. And when you eliminate all the samskaras, you are least free. <laughs> so that's the claim that I'm going to try to build up towards making. So let's examine why. So you have these samskaras and they come with you from previous lives. So the reason that you gravitate towards uh, spirituality in this life is because you encountered it in previous lives. Um, Anisha, actually, one of, the, one of our friends who comes to these talks quite often, phrased it very beautifully. If She said in her words, if all your lives are being lived at once, then your enlightened self-life is currently being lived. And that samskara is affecting you now, getting you to do spiritual seeking. You know, the Buddha once said the saint and the sinner are both present in each person. You know, so that's why you bow to everyone, bowing to the Buddha nature in every being. Since every being will at some point be perfected all along different uh, timelines. And since there's no time, they're already perfect now, even though they're robbing from you. You know, there's a beautiful story. Once a monk uh, was walking along the Ganga and he saw a shopkeeper getting beaten by gangsters, like the gangster trying to steal something. So the monk jumped in front of the gangster and said, stop, you know, don't do this. And so the gangsters roundly and routinely beat him up, you know, beat him to one hair's breadth of death. And so his fellow monks found him there, broken and bleeding, and they like took him, brought him back to the monastery and started to give him milk to revive him. So legendarily, this monk woke up and his brother monk said, brother, 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 who beat you? And in his spiritual maturity, he said, the same person that beat me is now giving me milk. <laughs> Isn't that a beautiful idea? This is a monk who doesn't see any separation. It's all one for this person. You know, it's all a non-conceptual, pure experience. Anyway, so this idea then that um, you are drawn towards spirituality because of previous experiences with spirituality. Maybe you were initiated by a tantric guru in your past life. Maybe you were in a Coptic monastery in north of Egypt, and there you became very mystically empowered. Whatever it is, some previous experience was responsible for you finding the Hare Krishna temple, for you finding the Vedanta Society of Southern California. You know, something brought you there. And if you investigate closely, you will get the sense that there were just these weird synchronicities that um, seem to guide you towards stuff. And if you recall those moments where you quote unquote made a decision, it was no decision at all. You know, you just flowed with whatever feeling was there. And just like some samskaras are very good for you since they draw you towards the liberation of all samskaras, some aren't. <laughs> so you are a mixture of samskaras. You know, while there are spiritual samskaras in you, there are also samskaras that draw you the other way, you know, that color your world in terms of red, orange, or yellow. And these two samskaras are often at war in you. And that's why a lot of the early religions depict this predicament of yours as some kind of dualistic struggle between God and Satan between heaven and earth, between spirit and animal. Anybody who starts to meditate will start to feel this weird kind of schizoid pull between their animal nature and their quote-unquote spiritual nature that in the beginning seems at odds. 
In the end, it gets perfectly reconciled. But in the beginning, it seems like, "Ah, I don't really, you know, it's almost as if your predicament, and I was thinking about this earlier, watching the sunset, I was like, oh, my predicament is like an angel identified with an animal. And now I'm caught somewhere in between. I don't know which one I am. And if I try to live like an animal, I feel undignified and unsatisfied. But if I try to live like an an angel, I feel ungrounded and unconsummated. You know, the purpose of life seems to be to resolve these two uh, diametrical opposites. Anyway, at this level, you have a net force of samskaras acting on you. And each of your decisions is the resultant force of the sorry for the kind of vectors physics way of looking at it, but the way those vectors are coming at you, that's your action, your resultant force. You see this all over physics, you know, with resultant forces, with magnetic forces. There's even that rule, you know, to know which way the force is going to go, you know, that they teach you in physics class, the right hand rule or whatever (laughs) for the physicist in the room. Um, But so that is the argument that says you don't really have free will. Now, Here's the interesting thing. If you don't have free will, what do you do? Do you just follow the flow of your samskaras? You know, it's kind of disempowering to think that you don't have free will, that you didn't decide to be, you know, born in this body. Like, why is it that you have the samskaras that you have? Were they just impressed upon you by parents and culture and by chance circumstances moving through life? That's a pretty disempowering narrative, you know? So... There is in yoga what we call a shuddha vikalpa. Vikalpa means a delusion, fancy, not real. It's not true. It's fake. Shuddha, though, means pure fakeness. So it means kind of like a functional lie that you can tell yourself, you know, and the functional lie is there is something you can do about this samskara. You know, you can meditate. You can attend yoga philosophy talks twice a week. (laughs) You can do asana three hours a day. You know, there's stuff that you can do. So you need to feel that. You need to feel like you can do stuff in order to actually do stuff. You know, and on one level, the yogic philosophy says, no, no, that was your, that was your samskaras too. You know, your samskaras eventually brought you to doing stuff that will destroy the samskaras. Okay, so I'm going to invoke now that pyramid that we love to talk about. Um, this is an important pyramid. We've discussed it together a lot and it's important for this discussion. And that pyramid is the idea that the bottom of the pyramid resembles the top in any permutation. So the example of the rich-poor dichotomy comes from Eliza Yudowski, a rationalist at Harvard. But he says it this way. He says, take for instance, wealth. If you take the quote-unquote poorest people and put them at the bottom of the pyramid, there are certain sets of behaviors that they have. Maybe they wear sandals and go to certain restaurants, drive certain cars, wear certain clothes, etc. Then you look at the middle of the pyramid. These are the nouveau riche, the people who just come into money. They feel a strong desire to differentiate themselves from the ones below them. So they don't go to the same restaurants as the poor people. You know, they go to ritzy, famous restaurants. They wear different clothes. They uh, drive certain cars and they even adopt a certain dialect or vernacular, you know. Now, look at the top of the pyramid. This Eliza calls the old riche, which is the really wealthy. They're way more wealthy than the middle of the bracket, but they now feel a desire to separate themselves from the middle of the bracket, you know. So what they do is adopt 
the characteristics of the lowest part of the pyramid. So the super rich go to cheap restaurants, wear cheap clothes, don't make a big show of their wealth, use colloquialisms in the marketplace, you know. Uh, this is true for wisdom. People who have no knowledge are mute, dumb. People who are sort of smart talk way too much. <laughs> and people who are truly wise say nothing at all. So the difference between the wise woman and the fool outwardly seems similar, you know. So here's what I'm going to suggest now. At the bottom of the pyramid is the disempowered state whereby you are completely a victim of your samskaras. You are completely um, dragged this way and that by your addictions, your compulsions, and your desires. Some of us feel the spiritual awakening pressure in us to do more spiritual practice. We know that we should wake up with the sunrise and we know we should devote the first hour of our day to meditation and asana, yet we don't, right? When the alarm clock rings at 7 a.m., we even knowing that we should do that stuff, don't because of that overriding samskara of safety, security, root chakra, tamas, I need to stay in my bed. You know, it's warm in here. Or we know that the indulgence in a certain lifestyle or behavior will cause us to be so hungover tomorrow that we can't meditate, yet the desire for pleasure gets us to do it. You know, we go to ashrams and we get like these guru complexes and we're like, now we are the teacher, you know, and then we get into these power trips and there's so many ways in which we sabotage our spiritual practice, even though we know we should not. That's why Jesus could so easily say to the person nailing him to the cross, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. Isn't this a profound statement? On a moral and ethical level, Jesus is excusing the ethical wrongs of individuals because they literally could not do otherwise. You know, they were forced by their samskaras. This, by the way, is not an outlier in philosophy. Kant makes the same argument. So Kant says, when you are driven by your appetites, um, I think that's the word he used, appetites or senses. He called it senses. I don't know how the German translates to English, but appetite or senses, this uh, Wilker. Was it the Wilker? So one of the two, one of the two German phrases that used. But when you're forced by this uh, lower nature, uh, you don't have control. You're not free. And so you cannot be held responsible for your actions. You weren't the doer. You know, you were the victim of your samskaras. Isn't that interesting? So Jesus says that Kant makes the same claim. So on a disempowered level, I will say the bottom of the pyramid is those who just feel like they have no control of their life. They're just totally blowing in the wind, you know, drawn this way and that by their various samskaras. Now let's look at the middle of the pyramid. The middle of the pyramid is interesting because they are starting to take action. They're starting to do something about their samskaras. So they're saying, look, I'm going to muscle my way into my practice today. I don't feel like doing it, but that's exactly when I need to do it, you know. And now they feel like they're the actors. And so they do it. And these people, you know, start to become more and more spiritually advanced as they work through their samskaras, through the practice of asana, pranayama, meditation, jnana yoga. They do all of that stuff. Here's the beautiful thing. Sri Ramakrishna, the great Indian saint um, of the uh, late 19th, 19th, middle to late 19th century, made this claim. 
if you haven't found God, for him, Brahma, Jnana, enlightenment, if you haven't found God, you will think yourself to be the doer. You feel like the agent of your life. You are choosing to do stuff. But when you become enlightened, the third line of the Yoga Sutra, Tada Drashtu Swarupe Vastanam, when you abide in your own true nature as Atman, as Brahman, and your Buddha nature, then you're at the top of the pyramid, which again resembles the bottom, except in a completely different way. Once you get to that top level, gone is the idea that you are the doer. And in its place is the idea that you are a vessel through which the creative impulse of the universe is flowing. Jesus makes this claim a million times. I can of my own self do nothing. Maybe this isn't him being humble. Maybe this is a metaphysical truth that he's expounding. I can of my own self do nothing. All the works, all my works, my father does through me. Do you see that through me? Um, Reiki practitioners use this language. Artists love this language. You know, that we are, we don't make art. Art comes through us into the world. And if you are an artist, and many people in this room are, like Roxanne is a dancer, and, uh, you know, so many artists in this room. Lauren makes beautiful pictures. Um, it's just that if you are an artist, you are lucky because you have a direct experience of what I'm talking about. In your highest moment of inspiration, the song writes itself, you know, as Claire will tell you with that wonderful song she wrote, that it just seems to spontaneously emerge out of you. The chords are all there. Did you have to sit down and think about the chord voicings? Like, was that a G major seven over there or was it a G suspended? You know, like you didn't have to think about any of that. Um, it just seemed to come out from you from some other place. And that's when an artist feels most blessed. Like, oh, I was part of something. I was part of the creative process of the universe, universing, if you will. So you can, you know, uh, pick up Julia Cameron's book, The Artist Way. And the first uh, chapter is just full of quotes from artists in every type of profession claiming this. You know, as Vanessa points out, healers have the same experience that it's all coming through them. Sri Ramakrishna used to give a very beautiful phrase. He said, um, I am the machine. Um, Kali is the doer, you know, because he was a devotee of Kalima. So he always says, I can have my own subject. Kali is the, is the doer. <laughs> so that's the feeling that you get um, when you come into your true nature, Brahma Jnana. So I'll close now with this idea. Those three ways I described, these three ragas, these three lenses through which we regularly view the world, safety, security, pleasure, gratification, or power, ego, fame. If we're able to raise our vibration through a certain amount of spiritual practice or instantaneous insight to that fourth chakra, the heart chakra, anahata chakra, that is the first spiritual awakening. That's why people always say, you know, the heart, it's the, the way of the heart. When you get to that frequency, you see the world slightly differently. And then we can use the word compassion. You feel a compassion. It's compassion because it's the most selfish feeling in the world. You know, isn't that funny? It's the most selfish feeling in the world. Short of this step, Everything is, I'm doing something for someone else. Look at me in my charity. I'm such a good person. I'm self-sacrificing for you. You know, there's this like, there's this such ego in giving, you know, and we feel so good about giving, but for completely the wrong reasons. And uh, giving is hard. 
You know, it's not natural. It takes some work. Uh, we have to part with something. You know, giving feels like sacrifice. But when you get to this heart chakra level, suddenly it's the most selfish thing in the world because when you look around, you will see in every pair of eyes reflected back to you your own eyes. You know, you will see in every plant, every chair, everything, a certain aliveness that is in you and in everything else as well. Then the arguments I made at the beginning of this lecture about that one sheet of energy, that quantum entanglement, that feeling of all emotions are my emotions, you feel that. Here's the thing though, Lyric, it's not suffering. As we talked about previously, feeling everybody's emotions you know, feeling the entirety of existence, it actually doesn't feel like suffering. It feels like ecstatic madness, delicious madness. All conceptual ways in which you see yourself in the world are torn asunder. You know, and Rumi says, give up the drop, become the ocean. You know, and Rumi is all these phrases of, I am the bird in the sky falling. You know, there's Ram Prasad's poetry talks about the kite diving down. This death kind of of the old self, of the separate self, gives way to an ecstatic intensity. It's neither pleasure or happiness. It's neither grief, sorrow, or pain. It seems to be both of those things at the same time. You know, and it's an intense expression that can be captured by the Kali dancing in the cremation grounds. You know, Kali is often depicted with wild hair and she's whirling and cackling and dancing, um, surrounded by burning cremation grounds and dead bodies. You know, Shiva is dancing with the goblins, symbolizing his lower nature. He's made peace with everything. Um, and these gods are weird, they're eerie. Something is kind of like upsetting about them, you know? And that's the point. That's the point. Because there's something very upsetting to the ego about being in this place where you no longer know where you end and the other person begins. Do you know what happens to you? You lose all boundaries. You have no idea how to protect your boundaries anymore because you literally cannot conceptualize boundaries. You cannot perceive where you start and the other person, uh, where you end and the other person starts, you know? So that's the highest level of spirituality. That's the top of the pyramid. Okay. Now, as I promised in the beginning of the lecture, this is what Advaita Vedanta, or at least what, sorry, no, sorry. This is what Bhakti would say, that Bhakti aims to get you to see yourself as a vessel, as a servant to the most high, so that you can be a vessel to uh, bring that light into the world, you know? So that's what bhakti kind of, uh, how it orients you. Look at what Kashmiri Shaivism does. Kashmiri Shaivism says, yeah, 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 yeah. The jiva or the personality or the individual is never free. Sure. But that's not what you are, is it? Ah, so that's the Advaita Vedanta where it's like, when you do your Rigdrisha Viveka, Pancha Kosha Viveka, when you actually do your non-dual uh, insight meditation, you come to realize that you are no more this mind or this body than you are any other mind, any other body, any other cup, any other um, what have you thing in the world. What you actually are is Shiva, pure consciousness or Brahman, the monad, the only thing that exists and that emanates out this world as an expression of, okay, blank. The Advaita Vedantin will say and a mistake. You know, so this Maya is an accident. It's only here because you don't recognize what you are. Once you recognize what you are, this disappears. But the Kashmiri Shaivites have a more beautiful way, I think, of depicting it. The blank, they fill with art. 
You know, the reason you emanated this world into being is a completely autonomous, free act of self-expression. This next idea is the weirdest. You are not seeking enlightenment because you already are at any given time that pure, enlightened consciousness being. You're just playing pretend right now. You, as a jiva, suffer because that was the freely chosen desire of Shiva. Shiva, wanting to experience the fullness of her own being, took form as like Lauren as she is now. Of infinite possibility, she became Lauren in order to experience Laurenness. What does that mean? That means that she wanted to experience all the suffering of Lauren. All of that was valuable for this creative desire. It was like dissonant notes in a symphony, you know? Um, if you are already enlightened, why don't you just wake up right now? You know? Well, some of you have and you can, but why don't you? It's because Shiva still has a desire to play the part of spiritual seeker. Do you see? It rubbishes the notion of free will on an individual level, but establishes it in a grander sense on a macrocosmic, uh, not macrocosmic, but a transcendental level. So right now, this is the leela or game or sport of Shiva. Everything that you find around you is exactly where it needs to be for this being to explore itself in the way that it desires to explore itself. Complete infinite exploration. Once you discover this, then this world becomes fun. And then you can appreciate the, the, the seeming paradox of not doing and doing. So we'll close with that final word, Wu Wei, from the Tai Chi tradition or the Qigong traditions. These traditions come from Taoism. And Taoism is a very uh, synonymous philosophy with Kashmiri Shaivism. Or I would say even more Advaita Vedanta. Since the Tao is the same as the Brahman. It's the monad. It's the conscious principle that alone exists. The Tao De is the flowing out into being. So when you feel yourself to be the Tao, you also feel your De, which is the flowing. And from that place, you are in Wu Wei. So the phrase is Wu Wei. It's a very beautiful phrase. And it means, uh, <laughs> it's kind of hard to translate, but it means effortless effort or actionless action or the doing slash non-doing at once. Um, Eckhart Tolle phrases it quite beautifully. He says in A New Earth, something like, um, uh, you become not the liver of your life. You become, so you're something like, you are not the dancer. You are the dance itself or something like that. I'm paraphrasing horribly. But that's the ultimate conception of free will in Tantra. Okay. So let's close there. Um, according to Bhakti, you're completely determined. It's functional to think that you have free will in order to experience this delicious determinism. In Kashmiri Shaivism, you are actually at any given time and at all times completely free and you chose to be this. By the way, this means you chose your parents. You chose to incarnate with the set of circumstances that you have now. Should you develop a cancer at age 53? Radically, this philosophy says you chose that. That was part of your expression. That can be a little weird for a lot of people because it takes away all victim narratives. Nothing is happening to you. Everything you are doing to yourself, you know. Now that is the most radical form of freedom. And let's close there. 
Thank you for another incredible episode of For the Love of Yoga. Had a lot of fun today. For more episodes, guided meditations, and instructions in various topics in yoga, please visit us at patreon.com slash yoga with Nish. I hope to see you in a live online class sometime soon, and I wish you a beautiful day ahead. Peace, peace, peace. Do stick around for the rest of this podcast to listen to some uh, questions and answers from the people in the class. Take care. Yes, Casey. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much for that. I missed um, last week's talk. So, um, you know, I get what you were saying about like preconceived notions. Like, like I did cadaver lab and we had to see like dead bodies and I was like, oh my God, this is so crazy. Right. But um, I guess like other people are very desensitized, you know, the doctors who work on those dead bodies, like don't find that so crazy. So yeah, I get that. Um, where I got confused was like the past life thing. Like if we're like all diff, um, all one and interconnected, how do we, how is my past life like different than your past life? Right. I don't, you probably did touch upon that last week. It's an excellent question. And it's, <laughs> it's only true insofar as you're using the term I to mean the jiva or the personality. So if you take yourself to be Casey's mind and personality and body, then that mind, that body has a specific trajectory. You know, so there are certain past lives that preceded this one. Okay. And this trajectory, let's just call it trajectory A that right now turned into Casey Wood right here in New York. And uh, this trajectory, trajectory B, that resulted in Nish's mind, body, whatever drunken monkeyness that Nish is. These are two trajectories that seem quite discreet. You know, so my past lives aren't really your past lives insofar as we both consider ourselves to be individuals. Okay. Right. Okay. So that's fine. That's fine. So like, that's true. But when you have a non-dual experience, you realize that your, your I, you know, the use of the word I changes. So you no longer say I to reference or denote the mind and body personality construct. Your I is now the I of the all. I don't want to say the all, but the one, which is Brahman or Shiva. All these trajectories, KC trajectory, NIST trajectory, and every other trajectory here are all contained within that one thing. So you actually have no past lives because that right. one thing, yeah, was never caused. So like, it's like um, just different lives are expressed through different people. It's not like specific to one soul or something like that. Another interesting question, because the the word soul, you know, is is an interesting one, because soul is a very Christian word, um, and it doesn't really do well in the Indian philosophy, because if you say soul to mean Atman or self capital S, then you don't have an Atman different from mine. There's only one Atman, and we all have the same one, (laughs) because only one thing exists. So you cannot use soul to mean the Atman. Um, can you use soul to mean the Purusha? Yes. So maybe Patanjali Yoga Sutra, you can get away with this. You can say we each have a Purusha. But here's the weird thing. Each of these Purushas are not the mind, not the body, not the energy body. So they aren't really in the world. 
you know, and by the way, they're all part of like a bigger Purusha known as the Vishesha Purusha. So even in Patanjali yoga or the Sankhya school of yoga philosophy, each person does have a unique Purusha, but that Purusha is transcendental, meaning it is unaffected by anything going on in the mind and body, meaning it's not affected by past lives. So it's not the Purusha that goes through past lives, you know? So the best thing I can give to you, Casey, in terms of a soul is your pranamaya kosha, your energy body. So the thing that does go through many lives is your etheric body or astral body or pranamaya kosha is the yogic term for it. Um, and that you can think of it as a database. It just gets impressions and it spawns new bodies to uh, carry out those impressions. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. But, but do I own those impressions? Like, 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 is that something that's mine? Yes. If right. you're using mine in the sense of the Jiva, then yes, it kind of comes with you, you in parentheses. Okay. Yeah. Also, I, I loved how you brought the chakra stuff into this discussion today. Cause I've come to the realization, like the chakras are like, they're supposed to be like transcended, right? Like we're not trying to like heal them. Yes. We're trying to move past like the challenges that they come with, like our root, like we have to outgrow our need for security outside of ourselves and stuff. Yeah. I wanted you to get more into the upper ones too. <laughs> like what happens after the heart, right? You know what? One really cannot speak about that stuff because once you go past the third <laughs> chakra, all language fails. Like the poets are poets of the heart. Once you get a little higher, the throat and agnya and sahasrara experiences are all so mind-blowingly non-conceptual that to mm -hmm. limit it by any phraseology, I think doesn't do it justice. Mm -hmm. you know, it's just too kind of out there. Like I don't even know where to begin, but you're right, Casey. And this is something we have to point out. The chakras, there are two uses of that word. One is the Western psychoanalytical model as seven modes of being, which I think has value. You know, I mm -hmm. don't like to put that system down. I think it's a very valuable tool, you know, mm -hmm. to like know yourself as a psychological being. The chakras in the uh, tantric sense, though, you're right. Um, there are seven um colloquial chakras that Ramakrishna uses seven Paramahansa Yogananda uses seven um, seven seems to be kind of the most universal experience though there are most traditional tantra says five there are only five chakras mm -hmm. and some of them have many but you're right the chakras are never blocked it's only your shushumna channel that is blocked so there's the central channel, this is to borrow the language of Tantra, going through the um, center of your nadis, known as the Shushumna. And you, as long as you are in a world of duality, pain and pleasure, happiness and sorrow, are bouncing between the extremes of Ida and Pingala, the two afferent and afferent, and you, you know, they're snaking around like this. Every time a yogi stops breathing, there is an opportunity that the two counter streams will merge. And that opens up the Shushumna Chakra. When the Shushumna Chakra is open, you get access to the chakras. And as long as the Shushumna Chakra is open, you always have access to these chakras, you know, one after the other as you continue up the path, so to speak. So they're never really blocked. You know, they, they can never be blocked. They can never be healed. Um, but 
they can be only accessed through a certain amount of practice. Now, a second thing to say here with regards to the chakras, even having said all this, they are like, I think better phrased as planes, you know? So the chakras don't see them as like these orbs in the body. I mean, there are ganglions of nerves, right? That correspond to them, but see them as ways of seeing. So if you are in the root chakra, there's nothing wrong with it, except if it's the only thing that you see. You know, so if the root chakra is the only lens through which you look through, life feels very limited. The goal is not to get rid of the root chakra. It's to see through all seven. They become more inclusive as you go up. Yeah, I thought it was interesting too. Like the root chakra is like anger and like, you see red when you're angry because <laughs> anger is like self-preservation. You know, you're trying to preserve yourself. So, yeah. All right. Yes. Thank you for answering. <laughs> yes, I hope that helped, Casey. It was a really it good did. question. Thank you. <laughs> Austin asks too, because Austin asks in the chat, um, I thought Atman was the individual soul as a fragment of Brahman. Well, not fragment, but finger on the hand of Brahman. Yes, actually incorrect. Um, in Advaita Vedanta, Atman is Brahman. The formula is Atman equals Brahman. There's no distinction at all, not even like finger or anything. Atman is Brahman. The words are interchangeable. The reason there are two words though, is to point this out to you. If you go seeking the answer to the question, who am I? You will get the same answer as if you, as if you ask the question, who is God? You know? So that's why Atman equals Brahman. So when you go deep within in meditation, you discover the self, you realize that to be the only thing that exists. And it is also the macrocosmic self, you know? Yes, of course, Roxanne. We'll probably still be here when you return. Uh, yeah, so not fragment, not finger either, because finger seems to presuppose that there is a bigger body. Like Atman is the finger of Brahman. Nish's finger is different from Nish. And here's the thing, you can chop my finger off. Don't, uh, you know, for all my Vedanta, I will still say ouch and protest you doing it. <laughs> um, but um, you can chop my finger off. Nish and Nish's finger can be separate. But Atman and Brahman can never be separate because they are one and the same thing. What you are referring to though, Austin, there actually is a yogic school for this and it's called Sankhya. So in Advaita Vedanta, um, Atman equals Brahman. But in Sankhya, Sankhya, which is where yoga comes from. Yoga is in the school of Sankhya philosophy. You have a Purusha and this Purusha, you can kind of say is a finger or fragment of the Vishesha Purusha. So yeah, in this philosophy, then yes, there are individuals. Um, it's also sometimes called Vishisht Advaita, which means qualified non-duality, you know? Um, so it's just uh, Purusha, it's just past Purusha. What is that? What's past Purusha? Hey, one second, I'll just go off mute. So what I mean by past Purusha, so if you were like exploring psychogenically, I guess, uh, it'd be like Purusha as the end or like the barrier uh, where the egoic sense of self would like stop. And then beyond that would be Atman, which is like you you looking at Brahman, but it's really just like looking out into the, the ocean or whatever, like you're, you're on the coastline, like yes. Purusha is the coastline. 
Atman is like the part we would call like, oh, it's the Caribbean Sea, but Atman is still part of, it's the ocean. It's just when you yeah, say. Yeah, 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 yeah. I love that. Purusha is the coastline. Atman is the ocean. Love it. Yes, correct. The uh, Tantrikas in the 10th century AD laughed at Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. They were like, huh, children, these Sankhya people, they failed to account for how Purusha and Prakriti are co-joined. And so if you look at the tattvas of Kashmiri Shaivism, Purusha and Prakriti, uh, there are higher levels. And if you go deeper, if you go past Purusha, you will get to what Austin you're describing is the experience of the ocean, which is Tantra is called Shiva Shakti. You know, so Purusha is in Shiva Shakti. Um, and so the question is, Patanjali, my man, if you only had gone a little deeper, you know, that's kind of the challenge of the Tantrikas. And as Claire pointed out, uh, what Patanjali can do for you is Kaivalya, which is the complete ending of mind and body and the establishment in your true nature as Purusha. Kaivalya translates to aloneness or maybe even aloofness. So if you master the yoga of Sankhya, you know, what you get is a renouncing of the world. You don't thirst after the gunas, meaning you no longer act in the world. You know, the ideal of Patanjali is that you go up to a cave and you sit there and you're done with Prakriti, you know? And the tantrikas are saying, how dull. There's more to do than that. You know, instead of leaving the world, become the world and enjoy the play of your own Maya or your own Shiva Lila, whatever you want to call it. So Tantra, they say, is one step after Patanjali. It's maybe like Patanjali is to Tantra what the steam engine is to today's electrical car, I sometimes say. <laughs> you know, Tantra is a more updated spiritual technology. But of course, it's all a matter of opinion. There are some Sankhya philosophers, and I, for instance, have a deep love for Patanjali and Sankhya. I think it's a very profound philosophy and is the foundation of a lot of other Indian schools of philosophy. So I think it can coexist. Tantra doesn't need to trump Patanjali, you know, I think, I don't know. <laughs> Did that explain it, Austin? Yeah, no, totally. Okay, good, good, good. Yes, good Thanks, question. Brother. Good question. And uh, we have some new faces today, which is really nice. Marley, you were here last week, but I didn't get to see you. So it's nice to see you. You doing okay? Yeah. Yeah, I'm doing great. Thank you. Good, good. Yes, happy to see two screens of you. That's nice. <laughs> yeah, I'm having issues with my microphone. I'm sorry. No worries. That's cool. Bye, Lily. Thank you so much. See you Wednesday. <laughs> Um, and M Forest LC five five thirty six. Hi, yeah, that's my mom's iPad, and I can't figure out how to change my name. But I'm Abby. Hi, guys. Hi, Abby. Welcome <laughs> to the family. How's everyone doing? And um, Austin's iPhone, I believe, is Austin's friend. Hi. Um, no, this is my first time attending the Zoom. I found you via TikTok and watched your live. Monday talk last Monday. Um, so I'm excited to uh, be here. Welcome. Welcome Thank you so much. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that I just wanted to kind of share that I was reflecting on um, with the whole, you speaking about coming back, like kind of the enlightenment coming back as these forms as like niche or it's like me to experience all of Austin-ness or whatever. Like one 
theory that I kind of like was taught when I was a kid from my dad was that like the enlightened being, if you're totally enlightened, you can kind of have all power, do whatever you want. So like the only, you would get bored and like the challenge that this all powerful enlightened being had was um, the only thing it couldn't, didn't know if it could do was like to, if it could destroy itself and in doing that, like it turned into everything that currently exists is like the enlightened being in multiple forms and kind of this idea that in a way it's kind of putting itself back together by like people becoming more connected and coming back to this point of like enlightenment. And I guess I was curious if there's like kind of um, a concept that there is collectively a higher enlightenment as time goes by that's going on, or is that being like thought after? Yeah. Wow. Your father is a straight up realized being because that is the highest conception of Indian philosophy. That is the claim of Tantra that this Mm. being just got bored. Like really Mm. that's it. It's like Icha Shakti, the desire was what caused this creation to come into being. So desire is the root of all creation. this, This world is made of desire, you know? So that feeling of like, wow, I am a monad. I am one field of pure awareness. How long can you be that? So that feeling of like, wow, I am a monad. I am one field of pure awareness. How long can you be that without desiring? Wow, I am a monad. I kind of like hearing sometimes that echo just to see like what ridiculous thing I just said. And I'm like, what is the drunken (laughs) monkey up to this time? What nonsense is he peddling the people? (laughs) Yes, welcome, welcome. So um, yeah, it's the question of, Will you spawn the universe is more like the question of when will you do it, you know? So yes, out of boredom, there, I don't want to say boredom, but a desire to experience itself and explore itself, this world came into being. Welcome, Iman. Am I saying that right? Okay, welcome, welcome. Yes, yeah, so why did this universe come into being? That's the answer. So the game, you're right, will end when all beings wake up. You know, so Nietzsche actually, Nietzsche has these weird moments of lucidity, even though he was like a deeply bitter guy, you know, <laughs> brilliant philosopher, but very kind of like, <sighs> but he had these brief moments of like such tantric moments where he would say something like a truth is no truth if it's not accompanied by joy and laughter or something like that. He'd say a day that you don't dance is wasted. A God who doesn't dance is a God I don't believe in. You know, very tantric words because the depictions of divinity in tantra are like the dancing Shiva or the whirling Kali reeling on ecstatic drunkenness, you know. Now, the game is that. Um, The game is to, as Nietzsche puts it, to see through every pair of eyes, you know. So right now, we see ourselves to be a separate self. The goal is not to be one thing. The goal is to be one thing expressing itself as many things that simultaneously recognize that unity and diversity. So when I'm able to look at every Zoom screen and you're able to look at like every other Zoom screen and it doesn't feel like we're different, that's when the game is won, so to speak, and the world dissolutes. You know, so this is a dance of destruction because as we get into later and later stages of the game, things fall away (laughs) You know, who you thought you were falls away. In a sense, your house burns down. It's all death. It's all destruction. It's all tear it down, tear it down, you know. Um, That's the fun of it. 
we built a Lego tower and now the joy is smashing it to bits. <laughs> um, but this is because I'm a Shaivite and I speak in terms of destruction. So apologize. <laughs> Talk to a Vaishnavite and they'll give you a different idea. <laughs> Uh, why can't we all become enlightened at once? Tower of Babel, etc. Oh my God, Claire, it's a great question. And uh, the question actually has been asked and answered in the form of a parable. So the parable is that um, Brahma or the creator deity wanted to create a world and experience itself in that world. So it made this world and then it went inside the world. Um, but because it knew the world was total fiction, it, didn't enjoy the world, like the world just disappeared. So every time it realized itself in the matrix, the matrix would disappear like a dream upon awaking. So um, the only way for this being was to be in the world was to go in it and use the men in black uh, memory eraser and then forget, but leave a little trace of memory and then go down that trace. The story, actually, I forget how it was actually phrased, but it uh, involves many gods. It's all the gods going down together. And they all take a vow to forget together. If they all become enlightened at the same time, it ends for all of them. But if some but of if them some become enlightened at different times, then there is a beautiful game that can be played where the enlightened ones, hey, welcome, Joey. Good to see What's you. Up? Welcome. The enlightened ones can teach the less enlightened ones and there's like gradation. And so there, there becomes more possibility in the game. If it was just an on-off button where it's nobody's enlightened and then everybody's enlightened, you would miss out on that nuance, color, and shade between the two states. So the idea then is Shiva, Shiva is here, right? In the crown chakra, Shakti as Kundalini energy is in the root chakra. They separated because of a fight, so to speak. You know, they- So- Yes, Joey. Life is a game of realization. Yes, the purpose of life is self-realization. Okay. Yes. So does that mean that um, what what is the Indian God again? I'm sorry. Oh, it depends. It depends. I mean, uh, such it the one of yeah, beautiful chaos. She dances with the head and she severs its ego. Yes, because I am a Kali Bhakta. So you, I, I have to disclaim here. The reason I depict this creator deity in the form of Shiva and Kali is because I was raised in the tradition of Shiva and Kali worship. We are a sect in the world of Hinduism. There are others, you know, and some are not as eerie and weird as ours. <laughs> we are uh, graveyard frequenters. You know, we like to talk in terms of ash, death, dance, ecstasy, wine. We call ourselves the left-hand tantric path sometimes, you know. Now, if you ask a Vaishnava, they will say God doesn't have those characteristics. God is Vishnu, you know, so prim and proper. The perfect husband, the perfect brother, the perfect but friend. He's that's what causes, uh, my bad. That's what causes everybody to think that we weren't all created in the same image though, correct? Because God carries this image of perfection. And I feel like that's very inhuman. Interesting, interesting because in the Hindu school of thought, what you are is perfection, you know? So your imperfection isn't actually real. It's something that you mistake yourself to be. So insofar as you identify as the mind and the body, then there's imperfection, you know, but you're not that. What you actually are, your true humanity is none other than God itself. 
again, that's a non-dual way to see it. Um, but I hope that I can maybe get across, Joey, that there is a lot of nuance between different schools of thought in the Hindu canon. And each one thinks of God in a different way and depicts God in a different way. But the best thing that I can say, the most agreed upon definition is not a noun, it's a verb. So we don't define God as being anything. We can only define it as doing something. And that verb is sat chit ananda. Sat meaning it's real. It exists. Ananda. Yes, I'll write in the chat. Sat chit ananda. So if you take nothing else from this discussion of uh, what God is in Hinduism, this is what you should take with you. Sat chit ananda. Oh, sorry. Ananda. I can't do the Sanskrit lines, but there would be a line above uh, uh, the A of an, Ananda. Sat okay. means it exists. It's being, pure being. Um, it is the only thing that exists for some schools. For others, it's not the only thing that exists. But all schools agree that it exists. Except Charvaka. Charvaka, Jains, and Buddhists don't. <laughs> so Charvakans, Jains, and Buddhists are all Indian philosophical schools that don't accept the existence of God. They are non-theistic, or you could even say atheistic. Yes, I see you, Iman. One second, and then I'll answer Shannon and then come right to you, Iman. Um, so such an Ananda isn't true for Buddhists, Charvakans, or Jains, but it's true for almost every other Hindu school of philosophy. Chid means consciousness. So chid means that this being is conscious. It's conscious being. Its substance is not stuff. It's not made of rock. It's not made of wood. It's not even made of energy. It's made of some other substance known as pure consciousness. So the which last is, word is the most important, ananda, which means bliss. So if I were to define God for you, Joey, Hinduism says this, God, sorry, non-dual Hinduism says, I always have to preface this because I'm a non-dualist, but non-dual Hinduism says, God is the blissful awareness of your own being. Yes, that's, that's the definition. That's powerful. So that must be why there's so much meaning when someone says, I am. Eheye, eheye, you know, I am that I am. That's the definition for God from the Bible. We have the same one. Aham idam aham. I am that I am. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Good, Joey. Really good question. Yes. Shannon asks, I was wondering about our discussion on samsara. Um, I was introduced to samsara through Tibetan Buddhism which describes samsara as the six realms that are bound by karma uh, through clinging and craving. Yes. How does this relate to how samsara was brought up tonight? Great question, Shannon. And uh, the um, part of the lecture today where I was talking about the samskaras, um, remember the triangle? The bottom of the triangle and the middle of the triangle are samsara. So the bottom of the triangle is the samsara whereby you cling and you crave and that's what causes death and rebirth death and rebirth so the idea of samsara as this wheel as this cycle of going back and forth and ultimately going nowhere is the experience of anybody who's a victim or um, a slave to their samskaras you know so as long as you feel this craving for stuff this desire for experience in the world you are in samsara so in the Buddhist conception, this is what is the, the definition of suffering. Chasing your own tail. You know, you want stuff, 
and you're running away from stuff, but you're always running in circles <laughs> because you run towards shit and you get it and then you run away from losing it, you know? So it's, it's entirely meaningless and eventually you realize how meaningless it is and then you try to wake up out of samsara. So this too is samsara. This of uh, uh, trying to get out of samsara is samsara. Once you are out though, nirvana is by definition the blowing out of all samsara. So the Buddha, and this is core Buddha, right? Like Dhamma Chakra, Dhamma Chakra, core canon Buddha says samsara is overcome by nirvana. But wait, Shannon, there is Nagarjuna who is a Buddhist in the 10th century who gives us samsara equals nirvana. That's a Nagarjuna kind of philosophy. And his idea is that samsara looks like samsara when you're looking at it from over here. That same samsara looks like nirvana when you're looking at it in a different way. <laughs> does that uh, help in any way, uh, Shannon? Yeah, yeah, that definitely does. Um, so you made a distinction between samsara and samskara. Can you clarify that? Yeah, the words are near friends, but the Buddha also uses the word samskara. So in the Buddha's Dhammachakka, that's his like kind of core text in which he talks about the four noble truths and stuff. Um, there's the, what he calls the pancha skanda. Uh, pancha means five, skanda means body. So the Buddha talks about the five bodies that you have. And one of them is the samskara skanda. So yes, in the Buddhist language, there is the use of the word samskara and it means the same thing. Uh, impressions or tendencies or desire to be in the world or to take rebirth. The goal of the yogi, uh, no worries, Sean, it's all good. The goal of the yogi is to end samskaras and the goal of the Buddhist is to attain nirvana in this life so they don't take rebirth, right? So the Buddhist and the yogi are both trying to avoid rebirth. Because both of them recognize that birth is inauspicious, you know? Birth is awful. Birth is being in a body, being a victim to craving and uh, clinging. That's samsara. So a samskara is what brings you into samsara. Samsara is the actual experience of being in the flux of running from things and chasing things. So samskara can be thought of as the electricity that powers the dynamo of samsara. Samsara is a hydroelectric dam. Samskara is the water that turns it. I have a question. Uh, I, I'm going to take Iman first case. Okay. I'm back at you. Yeah, she's kind of... Okay. Uh, Iman. Hi. Hi. Um, I was just watching you on uh, Zoom and... I meant on uh, TikTok. TikTok. And then you, men you mentioned Shiva Shakti and I got excited because I have... Mm -hmm. I have the tapestries I have been looking into Shiva Shakti. Um, but you made some type of statement a few minutes ago, um, making it sound like there's a specific, um, I don't want to say religion, but for lack of better terms, the specific religion um, just for Shiva and Kali, like for devoting yourself to them. Or yep. did I hear you wrong? Yeah, no, it's called Shaivism or Kashmiri Shaivism or because, you know, when we say Tantra, Tantra is a very um, generalized word. It, it, um, it kind of refers to a big range of different schools. But one thing about Tantra is goddess worship. You know, so that's one thing that we find in Tantra. Uh, 
coming back to divination, divine being as a female entity. You know, this world is seen in female terms. The senses, the goddesses of Tantra is um, its defining feature. So when we talk about Shiva Shakti, that is a tantric idea and it exists most notably in non-dual Shaiva Tantra. Uh, the um, scholar, the Sanskrit scholar, Christopher Wallace calls it non-dual Shaiva Tantra. That's the name of the school of philosophy. Um, you might call them Shaivites or Shaktiism. Shaktiism. So Shaktiism, Shaivism, they all exist within Tantra. And uh, one thing that you will notice is this Shiva Shakti idea where the male and female are one thing, the perfect fusion of Shiva and Shakti, consciousness and power. You know, so yes, what you're looking for, Iman, is Tantra, Shaivism, Shaktiism, or non-dual Shaiva Tantra. This is where the imagery of Shiva Shakti comes from. You will find it in Hatha Yoga a lot because Shiva is often teaching Parvati, his wife, who is Kali or Shakti, you know. Um, and each of the, like for instance, the Shiva Samhitas, this is a famous yogic text. It's like from 11th CE and it kind of starts Hatha Yoga. You know, like the, the core Hatha Yoga texts are like the Shiva Samhita, Shiva Svarodaya, um, the Gorakshanath stuff. Like these texts often take the form of Shiva teaching Parvati spirituality, you know. So a tantra, meaning the text of tantra, as you, you should probably get, pick up this thing, Vijnana Bhairava Tantra. This would be of some use to you. Vijnana Bhairava Tantra. There is a translation by Lauren Roche, PhD, called the Radiance Sutra. And this is a really good tantra um, because it's Shiva teaching Shakti about Tantra, and they have a little debate, you know. So this is why you get this idea, Shiva Shakti. Notice how Shiva is back there. He's like dancing, right? He's blue. He's naked. Yeah, I have, yeah. I have both. I have my Shiva here and I have my um, Kali yeah. over there. Yeah, they're very similar. They both dance around in graveyards with necklaces of skulls. <laughs> Shiva blows I know. things up. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. And people are just like, they come to my house and they're like, what are you doing? And I'm like, listen, you don't understand. You like, mm. That's right. the point. We're supposed to be weird. They're both outcasts. They're outsider deities because they say, if you stay in the confines of society, you'll never be spiritually enlightened. Dare to be a free thinker. Dare to face the ridicule of uh, society in order to become spiritual, you know? Do you think that they dance so much because they keep a strong connection with their inner child? Exactly. Shiva dances. That's what he does. He plays. I, I read a beautiful poem by Ram Prasad Sen, the 18th century poet. He says, Shiva, you are just playing dead so you can continue to enjoy the touch of Kali's feet on your chest. Isn't that beautiful? I, as a jiva, am pretending to be an unenlightened being just to enjoy my wonderful romantic tryst with Shakti, you know, because we are one, but I'm enjoying myself in this way. So a good way to see it is Tantra says, Kali is giving Shiva a lap dance. And that's when they're perfectly in fusion. 
So they're like, if you get a Yabyum Buddha, you know, you can check out these sculptures. They're called Yabyum Buddhas. Really great. It's like the Buddha who's sitting, but there's like a woman in her, his lap. There's also a female version where she's sitting and there's like a guy in her lap. Anyway, the idea here is that perfect fusion of Shiva Shakti is an act of like consummate sex. Like there's intercourse happening and they're one. Their bodies are one. You know, Shakespeare called it the beast of two backs, right? In Othello. Anyway, they're one. So what happens is, yeah, Joey's like, oh, they're one. What happens is they decide to spice up their sex life. Like that's a tantric story. So Kali disengages from Shiva in order to give him like a dance, you know, to like turn him on. So she's dancing, but her dance is so hypnotic and trance-like that it causes him to forget that he's Shiva. And he gets lost in the dance and he forgets himself. And she's dancing and you can say that it's her fault, right? Like she tricked him into forgetting that he's Shiva. She convinced him to eat the apple or not the apple, but the fruit. You know, she uh, is Maya. She's the trickster. That's the language of an older India. So Advaita Vedanta from like uh, 3800 BCE or maybe even 700 AD with Shankaracharya. It's like Maya, the trickster, Mohini, the deceiver, you know? How could she do this to us? Now in Tantra, we have a whole different view of it. It's like, oh, I wanted this. I wanted to enjoy this game, this, this dance. And yes, it's got to suffer, baby, because that's how I'm enjoying it. You know? Um, yes. Okay, that's Casey. So funny. Yeah. Yeah. Casey, what was your question? Sorry. <laughs> Went off on a tangent. <laughs> I really loved that discussion. <laughs> yeah, it was <laughs> that was good. great. Yes, it was good. Um, yeah. I just was thinking, I was going back to the samskara stuff. Yes. Like, is there really such thing as bad um, samskara? Like, isn't that like an opportunity for purification? That That's just like what I was wondering. Like, yes. is it really bad? Right? Like. Ah, uh, Casey. We will make a Shaivite out of you yet. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Is it bad? Good, Casey. Good, good, good. Another reason why Shiva and Kali dance in graveyards is because they rubbish the idea of what's good and bad. Shiva is known as the Lord of Wild Beast or sometimes the Lord of Crooked Things. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? He has a crescent moon because the crescent moon is often seen as imperfect. It's not as beautiful as the full moon. You know, he's covered in ash and he's like a weirdo um, because it champions the idea of like the, uh, not, the, the good that is sometimes seen as bad and the bad that is sometimes seen as good. So Shiva and Kali put up a middle finger to all societal conventions and with that, moralizing. Oh, good night, Vanessa. Thank you so much for yours, Vanessa. Take care, sleep well. But uh, so that's the idea. It's like in Tantra, we don't have this concept of good or bad. Even, um, yeah, yin and yang. And even Rumi says, um, beyond all concepts of good and bad, there is a field. Meet me there. You know, that's a Rumi poem. Um, but the idea is that in Tantra, we move beyond the mind. And concepts of good samskara, bad samskara only exists in the mind because the mind's function is to attach labels onto things. The mind judges. So Kali and Shiva are dancing drunk on the ecstasy of meditation because their mind has been rubbished. 
when you drink or smoke or like whatever substance you're into, what you're seeking is that. You're seeking the death of the mind and the death of all concepts. Of course, alcohol and uh, acid and any other uh, inebriant or intoxicant is um, a low-grade experience of what Shiva and Shakti have. So what they have cannot be called good or bad. So a samskara can never be called bad because a bad samskara is as good as a good samskara because all of it you chose as Shiva. That's why the word Shiva, if you translate it, uh, she is Sanskrit for lying down, like in Shavasana. So Shiva is the ground of all creation. He lies down and Kali comes out of him. That's why Kali is always stepping on Shiva. But the word literally means blessing or the auspicious one. So you need to see every moment, that is every encounter with reality as nothing other than Shiva, which means nothing other than a blessing. So say, uh, you know, there's a samskara to like drink or something. Or something. And you do that and it like totally wrecks you the next morning. Um, can you see that as a blessing? You know, is that a lesson there to learn? So in that sense, it was never a bad samskara. You know? Yeah. Like it's like about like extracting. I was like reading on Chris Wallace's blog. Like you're supposed to try and like extract the blessing from everything. Right. Like, I don't know. It's definitely interesting. I, I find like Shaivism and Shaktiism like so, so interesting, mm. but I feel very torn between like Buddhism and, and Shaivism. Like I'm very. There is Tantric Buddhism too, Casey. It's called Vajrayana Buddhism. It's the same thing as mm. the Tantric uh, Shiva Shakti stuff. Um, I'll mm -hmm. write it in the chat for you. It's called Vajrayana Buddhism or the lightning path of the Buddha. It uses the same language. They, they both existed in the same time. And there actually is some debate as to who started Tantra. Did the Hindus or the Buddhists start Tantra? And today, thanks to um, some very excellent scholarship, we know that Tantra started with Shaivism. You know, so Tantra started as a Hindu movement, not to use the word Hindu because it's kind of like a non-word, but it started in Shaivism and it later spread to Buddhism. So there is a Buddhist Tantra too. And you might want to study, Casey, the works of Nagarjuna. I already mentioned him earlier, but Nagarjuna cannot be avoided when we are talking about Tantra because he is the Buddhist Abhinava Gupta. You know, he is the Buddhist tantric extraordinaire. This phrase, samsara equals nirvana, is the same as Shiva Shakti or Shakti Shiva, as I put it. They're the same phrase, the same idea that both things are actually one thing looked at from two different angles. Yes. You like this philosophy, Casey, because there is this like flavor of radical inclusivity, mystical union. It's a very powerful thing. And it's like reject nothing, accept everything. Does that mean become a hedonist and get drunk all the time? No, because doing so will ruin your enjoyment of your Shiva nature. Isn't that weird? There are rules and there are no rules. <laughs> uh, if you ask a tantrika, they are usually super pure. They do asana like three hours a day. They fast all the time. They're often only eating fruits and vegetables. They're like meditating all the time. And yet their philosophy is ecstatic and uses the language like wine and sex. And, but they're mostly celibate. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> uh, Ryan, sorry, I kept you waiting there, brother. Oh, no worries. Thank you for the talk tonight, Nish. I just wanted to, to share with the group um, 
you know, after last week, um, struggling kind of all week with the idea, you know, of time not existing, trying to get up into that middle middle tier of the pyramid at the very least. Um, and I, I took it upon myself. I don't know what compelled me to, to reread Siddhartha. The over power the weekend. of Christ. Sorry. Yeah, it was that. That's what it was. <laughs> so I'm, re, I'm rereading Siddhartha. You know, I've, I've probably read it a handful of times in my life. And it's just, you know, it's just such a beautiful book. Um, yes. And, you know, it's so funny because, like, I probably read it for the first time when I was a teenager, you know. Um, and now that, you know, I'm like an adult and have gone through my life that, that I've gone through, like, I can clearly see like the Ryan that read that book as a teenager, like that's, 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 that might as well just be happening right now. It, it, like clear as day might as well be happening right now. <laughs> and everything that has happened in between there, like was necessary, like all the bad shit, quote unquote, bad shit that has happened in between there was necessary for me to get to this point. And that kind of brought up this question of, well, okay, if there's no time, if there's no free will, like what's so, so what's the point of anything, you know, like, (laughs) um, but I think from, from our talk today that, that question doesn't really matter so much in so much as like, I'm here, I'm doing this because my samskara has directed me to do this. And like what comes of it will come of it. Like that's, that's okay. And like in 30 years, like who knows what'll happen, but that might, that's like the same thing that's happening right now. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. I, I it, it kind of blows my mind how it, how I don't need to answer the question of what is the point of all of this? Why do I have to do this? What it doesn't matter if I have free will or not. It's, it's all good. Yes. Nailed it, Ryan. That is it. That is the highest experience of Shaiva Tantra. It's like, there was nothing to do. There is nothing to do. There will never be anything to do. There is no teleology or purpose to any of this. And like I said to Joey, the purpose of life is self-realization. That's relatively true. The purpose of life is to get to the point where you realize everything was perfect all along. There was nothing to fix, no growth, no healing, nothing to change. It is as it is because the word of God has already been spoken. You spoke it and now you're just here to listen to it. You know, you're here to enjoy it, so to speak. Um, And I'm sorry, Iman, I know that you wanted to go to bed. And you are wondering about narcissism. And maybe we can identify this with Ryan's question too, because on narcissism, I've once joked that um, this whole creation is the great schizophrenia of God. You know, the great self-pleasuring of God, right? The idea that you are the only being in the universe. Now you've created this universe of multiplicity, 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 so you can play with the fragments of your own imagination. Sounds totally schizoid to me. Also, the reason you created all of this is because of a dramatic self-love. Like you desire to explore yourself so much that you are willing to put me, Nish, through all this suffering just so you could have your fun You know, what's more narcissistic than that? Shiva, 
I, I, you know, I, I spit at your image of what you are is just a being that wants to enjoy yourself through me. And now I got to go through all this suffering. Okay. This is a language. I'll come to you in a bit, Joey. This is a language that Shaiva and Shakta poets use. If you read the works of Ram Prasad Sen, he is straight up irreverent. You know, he's like, um, he like curses Kali, you know, he like uh, berates his dark Devi as he calls it. And I wake up every morning sometimes scowling at my image of Shiva. I'm like, the fuck, dude? Why would you, what's your, and that's important. Like you should wrestle with God in the tent. You know, like Jacob fights God. Like we say hating God is as good as loving God because in both senses, you're feeling intensely about God, you know? That's the crazy irreverence of the Kali and Shiva worshipers. So yeah, maybe this is an incredibly narcissistic experience. Maybe it's an incredibly self-masturbatory experience. You know, and there are darker strains of Shakta that are like that. But there's a beauty to it. Because what you consider to be narcissism is the jiva or the individual self obsession with itself. That narcissism is bad because it causes you to think that that's all you are. You know, that you are just this body, this mind, and I'm obsessed with making this body and this mind as like grand as possible. Or I can only think of this body and this mind. Therein lies a lot of suffering. So there's a lot of suffering in the experience of narcissism. It's seen as like kind of a mental debilitating uh, a thing. You know, Claire says, importantly, I think is that narcissist wasn't in love with himself. Yes, exactly. You're in love with the reflection. That's an, a beautiful point because narcissist, if he knew himself to be what he's looking at, won't feel like it's separate from him, you know? So when you discover yourself to be the looker in the pond and not the reflections in the pond, thank you for the analogy, Claire. It's a great one. Um, and, and you know what? I even want to go further. Narcissus is looking at the reflection in the pond, but if he goes back, you know, he will catch a reflection of the sky. You know, Shiva, Chidananda is the sky of consciousness. You are blocking the sky of consciousness with your looking at the reflections that you yourself are making. If you step back, you will realize that it's just sky. It's just empty space. So how can empty space be narcissistic of itself? In a way, narcissism demands a contracted form. Narcissism demands othering. You know, in order to be narcissistic, you must be self-absorbed at the exclusion of other people. But if you are the space in which everything exists, how can you be narcissistic? You know, if you are the only thing that exists, by definition, you are either super narcissistic or not narcissistic at all. You know, but definitely not in the sense that we use psychologically today with uh, self-absorption. Did that do it, Iman? Um, a little bit. You know, I guess I meant more so like, you know, um, I guess I guess I'm looking for more layman's terms or something. Maybe you're using too fancy of words for oh. me to like comprehend it in my like lower consciousness. <laughs> No, 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 <laughs> you no. Know. I'll, I'll explain it some other way. What is narcissism to you? Um, just really, I guess, being kind of self-centered, self-absorbed. Um, I, well, the reason I was asking about narcissist uh, behavior and traits is because 
Um, I'm, I'm honestly going through a phase where I'm trying to figure out if I am a narcissist in a way, um, cause I'm just going through a breakup and I'm just trying to um, analyze everything, my own, my own, um, actions and things because I take full responsibility and accountability for everything. And I can, I can accept when I'm wrong and things like that. And so I'm just trying to figure out if I'm just really focused on my own future or if I'm being a narcissist and not caring about other people. Yeah. I think Joey wanted to uh, weigh in on that. Joey. Okay. So I had been reading this book called the power of now, and it helped me realize this big thing. And I feel like if you're empathic, there's like this, um, spectrum. And I've been trying to think about what the spectrum of people would be. And I came to this realization that it's a spectrum of empathy and narcissism. And we're able to be anywhere on that spectrum as we want to be. But if you are an empath in a narcissistic relationship, you are busy taking care of them and you need to relearn how to love yourself. You're not a narcissist. You're just coming back into who you were. Mm. Nice, Joey. Nice, nice. In the power of now. I like that. Yeah, it's good, Joey. It's good. Eckhart's second book, A New Earth. Have you read that one? It's the follow-up to one else. It's really good. It's really good. Anyway, he he makes a claim there. Like you can spend hours with a psychologist, um, pay a fortune and come away with a 50 page dossier detailing all the aspects of your personality and know nothing about yourself. His point there is that you cannot limit the profundity of your being into a label like narcissist or borderline personality disorder. You know, Tantra rubbishes psychoanalysis. Tantra says, you dare um, the audacity to diagnose yourself with something and say that that's what you are, but you are nothing that you are never anything that can be defined, you know? So to because you can redefine a, what's that? Joey say that because you can redefine it. Um, and even that would be, I mean, that's a you, step. like saying, yeah, I can define myself as anything I want to as a step that shows you the freedom that you have to conceptualize yourself in any way. Also recognizing that, um, yeah, you can only talk around what you are. So if you put labels on yourself and take that to be what you are, that's the error in Shaiva Tantra. So if you say, I am a narcissist, that's an incorrect statement. The only correct statement you can say is I am full stop. Because anytime you put something after the I am, you are lying. You are straight up committing a falsehood because that's not what you are. You know, say instead, Nish is enjoying this conversation. I am not, I am full stop. Nish is enjoying this conversation. Nish has certain patterns and uh, complexes that causes him to behave certain ways. Not me. Uh, though Sean wanted to weigh in and I wanted to hear your opinion, Sean. Um, I was going to say that more or less they can just be seen as like, like mental disorder or however you want to see it are more or less just these obstacles that we have to face. Um, and if you were to say, so I've been diagnosed with a numerous number of things and I've always grown up thinking, oh, well, that's me, that's me, that's me, that's me. You know what I mean? But then once you get into that mindset that you are not that, but that is only what your label is and that is what is limiting you. You know what I mean? And once I realized that, 
I've taken so much more control of these disorders. Oh, you can see how white my teeth are. Um, <laughs> I got a, I have a black light behind my camera. Um, but yeah, that, I mean, I still, I still struggle with a lot of these things. Like a lot of people have anxiety disorders or um, ADHD or whatever you, these things that you want to call it, but they're all, once you start saying, oh, that's who I am, that's who I am, that's who I am, this is all that I am, that is only limiting yourself to what you think those things are. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, I'm just, um, it's like a, I'm having a hard time because it's not that somebody has told me like, oh, you are this person. It's that I've noticed the pattern after stepping away from this relationship. I've noticed the pattern of, you know, multiple relationships, multiple uh platonic, romantic, or otherwise, you know, with coworkers, whoever, that has been the same type of patterns that I'm putting out. And so it's made me panic. And I'm like, getting these videos popping up, like synchronistically on YouTube about narcissism and what is narcissist and seeing people post on social media about narcissists. And it's like, am I attracting it because I'm starting to believe that? Or is it popping up as the universe saying like, hey, maybe you should address um, these traits or these tendencies that you have, you know, and it kind of seems like it's almost impossible to switch out of this, out of the space. And I've been watching this lady, Dr. Romani on YouTube, her, her whole YouTube channel is pretty much um, dedicated to speaking about narcissist behaviors. And she speaks as if like, that's it. Like you cannot change a narcissist. Once a narcissist, always a narcissist. And so I'm starting to lose hope. Like I'm always going to be like self-centered or like arrogant oh. or, you know, things like that. And, and it freaks me out. I don't want to put myself on a pedestal or look down or, you know, all that other stuff that comes with the tendencies. So I'm just like in this like really anxious state yes. right now. Um, Iman, big love because you've described the predicament of most of us so beautifully where there's so much going on in our heads. You know, our heads are filled with labels from the media telling us what we should think ourselves to be. And you're right. There's value in trying to figure out how to make your life better. But insofar as you're doing that through the mind, trying to psychoanalyze and figure out what you are so that you can act better in the world, you will always be frustrated. That's what Shaiva Tantra says. So what, do I, what am I supposed to do then? Exactly. What you're supposed to do, as you mentioned earlier, you're trying to shift out of the space, Iman. Those are your words exactly. You're trying to shift out of the space. The space that you're in, I'm going to define now as chitta vritti. In yoga means the whirling of the mind stuff. Right now, you're in this oscillating sphere of thinking about stuff. You know, um, This will not be fruitful for you. You need to practice some kind of embodied spirituality like asana daily, spiritual, maybe qigong, tai chi, something that brings you into your body. That's the first step. Next, you need to learn how to manage your energy through pranayama or breathing control. So when you can control your breath, um, you'll be able to control your energy a little better and you can prevent that feeling of anxiety that seems to overwhelm. Anytime that feeling comes up, don't solve it by thinking your way out of it because it comes from a prison of thoughts. You cannot think yourself free from a prison of thoughts. You must move your consciousness away from your mind to a deeper place. When you find that deeper place, Iman, I promise you the problems will dissolve in of themselves. You will just attract I, to you I more harmonious you. relationships. Sorry, Iman, what did you say? 
No, I was saying, I, I believe you. Like, you know, like I, I just, I really fell off of my path since last December and I was in a better space than not as anxious and not thinking I was a narcissist either. So I'm sure you're right. It's just like, I've created this reality that I'm in right now. That's making me feel like I am a narcissist when I'm not. Yeah. Thank you. Can I add? Yeah, please. Yeah. I just want to point out, like you can convince yourself you're anything on the internet, you know, like this whole QAnon thing showed us this this year, right? Like you could, like, I've gone through this myself. Like I would self-diagnose and think I'm something. And I talked to my psychotherapist about this, you know, and it's really your mind just trying to make sense of a situation. Like, like Nish said, like you're using your mind too much but I also you know I posted a video on TikTok that like got some backlash again and you know I you know I think of my like anxiety my my neurosis as like rocks you know we we pick up the rock you know I'm not the rock right you know we do yoga and stuff we put down the rock right but but we don't have to define ourselves with these rocks of everyone's a little narcissist, right? We all experience narcissism. We all experience anxiety, right? It's, it's our relation to those things that like is, gets us in these loops of like, oh my God, am I, am I this, am I a narcissist? Am I, am I anxious? Am I anxiety? Right. So it's really just like stepping back and being like, okay, let me reflect on how this is affecting me. Right. Move forward. But we don't have to like, identify ourselves with just that thing so exactly. that's all i want to say i hope that helps you yeah i love Thank that you. video that you can can i comment? add something as well oh yes. you're going uh, no, it's okay roxanne wait hold on roxanne is that you no because roxanne commented a very beautiful thing i should read it before going on but roxanne says the very fact that you are worried about it and asking these questions shows you are growing and asking narcissists don't do that um and Corey says, similarly, I feel like narcissists don't take risk accountability for their actions as you clearly are doing. And someone in the TikTok chat also said, um, the very fact that you're asking means you're not. So I just wanted to like point out that synchronicity of three people <laughs> saying that. Okay. Um, who was it that spoke just now? Was it, was it Joey or Mikey? I think Mikey go. I haven't heard from you yet here. Yeah. Um, I just would love to tie some of the themes together tonight. If I can add something, um, Please. I don't know if anyone here has studied the Enneagram of personality. Um, it's less known than the Myers-Briggs typologies, but it, for me, I grew up with it as a child and it was a very, very beautiful tool that kind of was masquerading in the, in the eighties and nineties as sort of a Barnes and Noble self-help. But in the later years have been, it came out of Sufi mysticism. They think um, it's a little bit shady where it came from um, and was sort of a just, as opposed to say a Myers-Briggs Myers -Briggs personality archetype or uh, more of a trait-based system of personality, um, this, was, this is more of an archetypal defense mechanisms of our species or archetypal um, uh, facets or um, hologram, like the color wheel, like splinters off of the white light of a whole. And I don't know if I can flip my camera, but I was going to show you some of these if we're talking about narcissism. So this is the book that's a particularly good at linking together um, the spiritual and the personality. And it, the way I would might say it to try to use Nish's terms is like a particular, it's a particularly um, 
heavy thorn in the samskars maybe to, to pluck out with knowledge. Um, it was very, very pernicious for me. And I happened to be the recovering narcissist type, which is known as type three. And what it can do it, to, to bring it back to the spiritual side, the, when the being sort of the perfect God being, you could say splinters itself into this illusion of duality. These are facets of different types of splinters off of the, the, the unity. So it would be like the delusion of, of duality for the Enneagram type one would be localized rightness for the narcissist. It would be like separate doer. That would be the narcissist narcissistic type. Is this coming through? I hope. And you could go around the circle and it seems like, um, with these sort of um, reductions in wholeness, you but as the being overcomes these things, like you know, separate self. Or I love one of the ones that I love is like the the classics X Games athlete type seven. It's romping through the world, believes they have separate unfoldment. It's it's really really nuanced and interesting. And what ends up happening is as the beings conquer you know, as we, as we get past these things, we end up representing sort of the opposite, like the, the sins, you could even correlate the sins, like the nine would be sloth or the, the narcissistic would be the sin of deceit and self-deceit. Um, and this comes across as vanity and all kinds of stuff. But when it's overcome, these beautiful, holy ideas are restored, like holy love, holy perfection, holy law, holy origins. Essentially the Oh, whoop, I'm on the wrong one. Sorry. Essentially, the facets that kind of make this flywheel or this electrical generator of the universe, like Nish was saying, kind of run. Um, that's all. I just thought I would, you know, point everybody to that. It's if they want to do deep personality work. Nice. Oh, thanks, Austin. I'll mute. <laughs> yeah, Mikey. Wow. <laughs> what does that? How does that feel, Iman? I've looked into the Enneagram. I have one of those apps on my phone, but you know, I don't, I'm not well versed in it. So I kind of just have it like collecting dust in my uh, phone menu, <laughs> but um, it definitely makes sense. And I know like, it's like, you know, it's just a matter of my mind and um, needing to take control and understand that I am not the mind. I'm not the body. Um, yes. You know, I'll, I'll listen to a lot of Sadhguru guru and try to follow his, you know, his um, teachings as well about I'm not the mind, I'm not the body. Um, I think I just kind of, you know, like you said, I got caught up and I got away from myself in the relationship and that kind of brought me into lower vibrations. And now that I'm out of it and I can now like look at my situation from an outside perspective, I'm, you know, trying to analyze it with my mind and overthinking things instead of, you know, just kind of come back to self, come back to breath, you know, and, you know, working from there. And then work my way up. I'm trying to like work from my mind and then, you know, do things out of order. Nice, nice. Uh, Ryan and then Sean. Oh, you're I was just waving goodbye to Lyric and, and Katie. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, Sean, are you going to comment? So I was going to say that I'm, I guess was still am in a similar situation to you um recently got out of a relationship where um i didn't know really what was going on i felt as if we were both in some very narcissistic aspects but at the same time very codependent at the same time um and something that 
helped and is helping me is one, I, I, I kind of feel like at some points you are dwelling on these wonders that you have that you don't have answers to, you know what I mean? And I feel like I do the same thing, but the one thing is that dwelling on anything at all is only going to lead to more suffering. Right. Um, and then the other thing was that just, what was it? I think it was just letting, letting everything just flow. You know what I mean? If you have this question that you have, you might not have the answer right away. It'll come to you eventually. And I mean, like, I feel like that's a pretty well-known concept, but the main factor being that the more you dwell on whatever it is, whether it be a question, whether it be personal insight, whether it be, did I do this? Did I do it wrong? It doesn't matter because it has already happened. You know what I mean? It's in the past, in the past. Um, so what more can you do from it than now, except from learn from it and learning from it doesn't mean constantly dwelling on what you could have done better, more or less of how you are going to use it to move forward type of thing. Thank you, Sean. That was powerful. Thank you. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, you know, listen, never mind. I didn't mean to cut you off. One second. But, um, I think Abby had her hand up. I just wanted to hear Abby comment and then we'll come right to you. We can we can come back to it after because it's like kind of turning 180 a little. So, sure, sure, sure. Joey, please. So I've been thinking about this thing, and what's helped me a lot. If you can't stop thinking about it, your mind just won't shut up. Just think as hard as you can until your mind is tired, and that's when that's done. Your heart will start the thinking. I like beautiful. Um, so, okay. Can you guys hear me? Okay. Yeah. Um, one thing I also wanted to say is just in regards to your situation too, is like when you have thoughts, you're not your, your mind or body, I guess. So you don't, you can like acknowledge you have a thought, but not accept that that's you. Like it can pass right by you. Like you don't have to hold on to it. If you think, oh, I might be a narcissist. You could think, okay, maybe I am for like two seconds. Okay. Let me think about that. But then you can let it go. Like you don't have to hold on to it. So that's just a that's something I learned that helped me. Um, but then my question for you um, was like, are you were talking about being non-dualist? And I know like last week I watched you on the TikTok live. So I wasn't here, but I was watching. Um, and you're talking about non-dualism and like how there's this pyramid of dualism. Um, okay. So I'm curious, like what your thoughts are about it in general, but also like how language, like Nietzsche said, like language is like creating this dualism and like with our language specifically, I think English specifically, we like use everything dualistically and like we put these, we put differences on everything between good and bad light and dark. And we like put these like moral accusations onto things. I was like a really um, intense thought, but yeah. Um, do you think that, I, I don't know, is that disregarding the idea that there's a need for good and bad or th those are my questions. <laughs> nice Abby. There's a lot in there. There's a lot in there. Um, language is functional because it helps us um, 
communicate experiences that we have, though the guru to shisha, teacher to student relationship in yoga is seen as more about communicating vibes than communicating concepts. So if you study the myth of Dakshinamurti, for instance, it's kind of a beautiful picture to see, but Dakshinamurti is a form of Shiva who came down to teach um, seven great sages. He taught the lesson entirely in silence. You can check out the Buddha's Sermon of the Flower, which is um, a historical sermon in which he came out. And the Buddha used to talk for hours. This guy was a verbose gentleman. And he used to talk for days. You know, Ram Das used to talk for like a whole night. He's like that. The Buddha would just talk and talk and talk. He had so much to say. But in this sermon, people had come to watch him give a lecture. But instead of speaking, he just holds up a flower. That was the sermon for that night, you know, and someone smiled. The Zen tradition was started because of that sermon of the flower. That smile, that secret smile that transferred from the Buddha to one person got transferred down. So if you study Zen, they use a practice called the koan, which is a purposefully paradoxical statement. Kant has something called antinomies, which work the same way. So a Kantian antimony, uh, antimony, no, yes, antimony. It's not antinomy, antimony. A Kantian antimony is like a koan. It's a languaging structure that collapses in on itself in order to bring the mind past language. So you'll notice something about non-duality. Most of our sages, except for Shankaracharya in the seventh century, are poets. <laughs> they know only how to describe the non-dual experience in intensely poetic ways. Give up the drop, become the ocean. Space, 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 you know? Um, so there is also in um, yoga, tantra and sankhya, a kind of linguistic mysticism that investigates the way we use words themselves. And uh, there is the Oh man, there are like four levels of them and I will study up. I've forgotten a little bit, but there's like the Pashanti level. There's the mental level. So there's words that we actually use. And then there's something called mentalese, the language of the mind, which is not words per se, but some mixture of words and images. And then there is a deeper language called the Prashanti Vak, which is Vak means word, by the way. So there are physical words that we make with our mouth. There are mental images that are half words. There's a deeper word verbiage. So there's a whole theory for that. But I will close by saying this, Abby, the, the, the statement, I see a pot, summarizes all Hinduism. I see a pot, subject, verb, object. A dualist is someone who's more interested in the object. So the dualist wants to be in the world, but wants to redefine the world in terms of God. So for a dualist, like a Vaishnava dualist, they see God as being out there. God is in the universe. It represents itself in every human relationship, etc. So I want to worship God. That's the solution in non-duality. Uh, then you have non-duality, which is more interested in the I. <laughs> it says the pot is not real. Buddhism is more interested in the sea. It says there is no I. The pot is full of suffering. Let's focus on the breath and the nose. You know, um, so these are three ways to unpack the sentence, I see a pot. Insofar as you're talking about moralistic good and bad, we actually don't have a lot of language in the Sanskrit vernacular for moral injunctions. You know, most of the words, I mean, adharma is the closest we can come to it. Uh, or maybe like a duratma, you know, duratma means a wicked soul. 
Adharma means lawless. These are probably the most moralistic words you find. But usually the languaging, Abby, is always around error, ignorance, misconception. Even the Greek word sin is translated to error. You know, it only sin, that word, that Greek word, which means a mistake or an error, to miss the mark is what it means. I think Eckhart Tolle says that in A Power of Now or A New Earth or something. But uh, the moralistic flavor we have now was not present in our ancestors' use of the word, I think. That's super interesting. And I feel like, I don't know if maybe it's like a history thing, but I feel like the way we talk about like other, like ancient Rome or I don't know, ancient Greece or just like a different ancient culture, the way we talk about like what they were doing. And like, it's just like, I don't know. It, I just like think that was, that's what came to mind. So, Yeah, good, Abby. It was a really good question. Did, I, did we get anywhere with it? Oh, for me? Or just like in my mind? Yeah. I mean, yeah. immediately in the beginning when you mentioned like it's about creating the vibe and not the idea itself, that kind of already kind of resolved that for me. But yeah. Good, good, good. Yeah. One last thing to say with that. Remember the difference and Michael and I were talking a lot about it, but the difference between Ashuddha Vikalpa and Ashuddha Vikalpa. So there are two kinds of Vikalpas. A Vikalpa is a thought construct or a concept. Vikalpa literally translates to delusion. Isn't that funny? So every thought concept is a delusion because every thought is one degree of separation between you and reality, which is non-conceptual. So the idea here is that there are two kinds of thought constructs. One is an Ashuddha Vikalpa. And a, 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 a kind of example is I am a narcissist is an Ashuddha Vikalpa. Or I am this mind is an Ashuddha Vikalpa. They are concepts about the world that are not aligned with reality as it is and so cause suffering. Then there are Shuddha Vikalpas, which means pure constructs, which connect to reality in a little bit more of an aligned way. And that helps you ultimately go beyond all concepts. So even a correct concept is still seen as a delusion. Yes. It's like the Tao. You can't speak of the eternal Tao. Yes, that's it. The opening line of the Tao. The Tao that can be spoken of is not the Tao. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the mother of 10,000 things. <laughs> so in non-duality, is the, our thoughts not, are they not ever had or are they had, or are they just not identified with? Are thoughts never had or are they not identified with? Um, in in no, non-duality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good question. The yogi in the Sankhya school um, burns away all the thoughts. So chitta vritti nirodaha. In the yoga sutra, it literally says yoga happens. The union event happens when all the modes of the mind are nirodaha. It's hard to translate. It means suppress. I don't like that word because it's kind of weird in the Western vernacular. It's like repression. (laughs) Maybe cessation. I've heard some translators say cessation, but niroda means like, like, Ugh, that's the only way I can kind of, but it's like, it's like to, I don't know, turn it off. So yes, Sankhya says yoga is completely non-conceptual. It's when the mind stops, when the mind ends. Advaita Vedanta says something different, a little different. One version of Advaita Vedanta says when you have Brahma Jnana, that non-dual experience causes you to wake up from Maya. And insofar as the mind and the body are in Maya, this school says it goes away. Like a bad dream, it goes away. But I think in actuality, you 
Or, or even if you look at Sri Ramakrishna, he says, the body falls away like a leaf upon attaining nirvikalpa samadhi, which is the technical term for non-dual experience. When you attain nirvikalpa samadhi, you can look at examples of Sri Ramana Maharshi who went and sat in a cave and allowed insects to eat his body. He was literally being eaten alive. And like I said last week, if you go to the Ganga, you will see really skinny yogis who, with long hair and long nails uh, who are just dying. They're just sitting there and they don't die for a while. That's the weird thing. Their body seems to just go on. <laughs> but uh, that is, in a non-dual sense, the ending of mind and body. Though Ramakrishna said, after a non-dual experience, you might still retain a sense of ego. And he called that either the ego of devotion in the case of Lord Chaitanya, the bhakti practitioner, or the ego of knowledge in the sense of Shankaracharya, the philosopher. Both of them, like bodhisattvas, held on to some personality. And in that, you can probably imagine there are thoughts, there must be, for them to communicate and be in the world. You know? So one way to think of it is after a non-dual experience, you have three kinds of people. One, you have the person who just fades off into nothing, body falls away, mind falls away. Two, you have the person who teaches in pure vibes, cobbles the shoes, and that shoes are the teaching. And three, you have the teachers who actually go out, start organizations, teach, verbally get ideas across. All three are in a non-dual state. The way that non-dual state expresses is different. Importantly, all three of them are in the same place while the stuff is happening. So yes, Finally, I will say you were right, Mikey. You answered your own question. Thoughts happen. You were just no longer identified with the thoughts. You are not the thinker. Yes. Good. Uh, Joey. Hi. So this actually had me questioning, but you kind of answered it for me. So our ego is given power when we associate ourselves with the thoughts that it creates. Is there a way that we can train that ego to raise us? Yes. There is, there is indeed. And it's called, make it a servant. It's a bhakti yoga approach. It says the ego is only a problem to you insofar as it lords over you like a little lord. You know, it's funny in the in Game of Thrones, uh, Nymphadora Tonks' character, I don't know what the actual actor's name is, but she always calls Brand little lord, little lord. You know? <laughs> and I always hear her voice when thinking about the ego. It's only a problem to you insofar as it's like me, 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 mine, mine, mine. I deserve not to suffer. You know, Bhakti yoga says insofar as you cannot get rid of the nagging voice of the ego, you might as well put it to work. See that language? You can use it. You put it to work in being a servant. So you serve everything. See everything as God. Everyone around you is God. Remember the story about the guy being beaten uh, by the people? It's God beating you, God giving you milk, God abusing you, God supporting you. Everybody you see, you see them as God and you serve them without question. You know, whatever they want from you, give it to them. They want your coat, give them your shirt too. You okay. know, it's a tall order, right? The commandment is this, love everyone. As an ego, love everyone. Don't tolerate people. Don't respect people. Love them. Meaning, love every single person you meet like your lover, you know? What won't you do for your beloved? <laughs> because then there's another level of being. Yes, it changes That's... your whole vibration. Wow, okay. Yeah. So, is that why you associate um, your ego with Nish and not with I? 
No, niche is the ego. Yeah, that's. Yeah, so, you're right. You're right. Yeah, not the I. When I when I speak, I'm recognizing in any given moment that there are two levels going on in me. There is the niche, my mind and my body delivering this talk right now, and that niche has a certain level of, um, you know, like knowledge about stuff and read some books or whatever. And now he thinks he's, you know, qualified to teach the great fool. And while he's doing that, I am completely unaffected by it. I am sitting here watching this process happening, counting on my mala beads the whole time, completely unimpressed by any of it. Um, And insofar I am in this state, I feel a great peace, a great bliss. And when I lose this place, then I can no longer, you know, answer your questions appropriately because then Nish would have to do the work. And Nish sucks. Nish could by no means think up lectures. You know, he's a completely yeah. deadbeat, uninspired being. But Nish gets a little energy boost insofar as I'm stepping away from him. You know? Yes. Wow. So the ego wants to live, and by stepping away, you give it what it wants while also helping others. Yeah, yeah. The only use for the ego is helping others. Put it to service. However you serve others, serve them. Just serve them doggedly. Austin, good night. Wow. Thank you, Austin. Thank you so much. So good to see you in your blue background. (laughs) Good to actually see you. It's funny how you're talking about, I'm sorry. It's funny how you're talking about like, kind of like your ego identity and then like the I that is you because, and like how you're doing this whole talk and stuff because like, like I said before, like I overanalyze and I overthink about my like arrogantness, my conceitedness about myself. And so like I have a YouTube channel where I do live streams. So I read tarot yeah. and I, I completely overanalyze one day and I stopped doing tarot for an entire month because I kept telling myself, the only reason you're doing this is because you want to put on makeup and have people stare at you while you read some fancy cards and whatever. And you just want your ego to be applauded. Like, wow, you're so right. So I stopped doing tarot for an entire month because I had that thought. Iman, that's more ego. That's the ego's favorite game to punish itself. You know, the ego loves creative self-sabotage. I'm losing. I'm losing. (laughs) Iman, you you are not alone. Like what you're experiencing is something that many people can testify to experiencing. It's not you. It's not your fault. It's the way your prefrontal cortex is designed, you know? And it's like you had a creative impulse and you honored that impulse and you're showing up for people and serving them. Your ego doesn't like that, you know? And so it's throw a wrench in the works. Um, But- you know what you should do, Iman, is watch that whole thing with no judgment whatsoever. So one part of you wants to do tarot. Watch that. Be like, oh, cute. She's reading tarot on YouTube. Sorry, I said she. Is that is that correct? I mean, Iman is reading yes, tarot. Yes. Okay, yes, my bad. Um, reading tarot on the internet. Awesome. Look at that. And then watch yourself in the drama of being like kind of oh, I can't believe I'm doing that. That's so egotistical. Do I want more attention? You are unaffected by any of it. You're just sitting, watching, laughing. Haha, <laughs> what is the drunken monkey up to this time? And it's right. a dissociative state. It's not a dissociative state. It's a state where you are so intimately connected with yourself because you are holding space for yourself in each of those moments. So the only problem is when you add value judgments. You know, as Abby pointed out, it's our moralizing that is the problem. So when there is an experience in the mind and the body, and there is a tendency to label that experience bad, that's what suffering is. 
Even if that experience is pain, it doesn't become suffering until we attach the label bad. I don't deserve to be experiencing this right now. I deserve better. But if you can just accept the experience as pure experience, not even your experience, it will change your vibration. So a few tips for you, Iman. Start referring to yourself in the third person. That's called the witness meditation. Sakshi meditation. Uh, anytime you feel the need to say I, for now, just say Iman. You know, that's one game you can play with yourself. Second, cease using any phrase, me, my, or mine. Keep a journal every night, write an entry, underline every time you use the word me, my, or mine, and do a tally. Don't judge it, just notice it. You know, and eventually, don't say I'm in pain. Say there is pain in the body. Or don't say, I am sad. Say, a sad, a, 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 an experience of sadness is arising right now. You know, <laughs> speak to yourself in that manner and it will completely change how you perceive the arising and dissolving of your various moods and experiences. Not even your various moods. The third exercise, Iman, is when you're meditating, sit to meditate and observe all the smells, sights, maybe an open eye meditation, sounds, flavors, and senses. And every time you feel like, oh, a smell is coming in, notice the tendency of the mind to want to label that smell. So the mind wants to make a story. You hear a dog barking, you go, oh, I wonder if that dog is cute. Oh, it's my neighbor's dog. Oh, my neighbor, I can't stand them. They're so noisy all the time. I wish they didn't listen to heavy metal at 4 a.m. Notice how a sound of a dog barking has conjured up a world of thoughts. Your only work now, Iman, is to notice how that happens. Don't change it. Don't resist it. Just notice it. You've seen Dora the Explorer? It's like, you don't need to chase off Swiper. You just have to notice him and go swiper, no swiping, and he's gone. <laughs> he's just like, ah. He's coming here to steal your joy. You're like, swiper, no swiping, ah. That's it. <laughs> so it sounds like from the practices you've given her, these kind of games, there are also ways to get better in touch with our higher selves. Your true self. Okay, that's really cool. Yes. Meditation is the key. You must meditate. There is no substitute. Meditation is the only way. And there are millions I, I of What's that, Iman? Yeah. No, I was going to say, like, I definitely, like, from talking to you and hearing, like, what everybody has to say, I can definitely see how much I really fell off my path because, like, it's just reminded me, like, I wasn't like this, like, last December, you know, I was, I was single for two months. I was vegetarian. I was, I had a very strict structured schedule that I was waking up five 30 to do my practices. Now I, I don't wake up at the right times. I'm eating meats. I'm eating pork. You know, I'm not meditating. I'm not doing breath work. I'm just waking up and, and, you know, playing around with some crystals and whatever. That's not really doing anything for me. You know, so I just I have to re like remind myself like I need to have a structure. I need to have a strong foundation, spiritual discipline within myself to stick to and to hold myself accountable and not to show up for myself. And I forget that sometimes because I get caught up in my mind to the point where I'm completely forgetting about showing up in the physical. Yes, yes. Excellent. Nailed it. I would just repackage that in one way. You have not fallen off your path. Don't phrase it that way. This falling off is part of the path. 
it has helped you remind yourself how important your daily 5.30 practices are. Without this falling off, you wouldn't have this deep faith and conviction in your practice. So it's part of it. See? If, and it, the funniest part, the funny part of the whole thing is like yeah. that I'm, I'm talking about this, like it's frustrating me, but I know on the inside, my spirit, like my true self is like, like it enjoys widening, opening the gap here to have this experience of quote unquote bad things or anxiety or fear or judgment. Like it's all for the cause. I have to understand it's all for the cause. Yes. Yeah, Good. Uh, Abby, you had a question. You were saying something. Yes. Yeah, a quick question. So you have the beads. Yes. Um, so I could ask my dad. He was a practicing Buddhist for a while, but I don't know, like, the use. Like, I don't know anything really about the beads. And I found them one day, and I've, like, led them. So I'm just, yeah. Yes, yes. Beautiful. I uh, really love malas. They're my favorite thing in the whole world these days. Um, and a basic mala, like, can be gotten in the form of a bracelet. Or yes, as Sean is showing, um, there are neck malas too. This is the more traditional rosary. It's 108 beads traditionally made of uh, rudraksha is the name. So this bead, this dried up little something berry, I forgot what it is. I don't know the scientific name, but it's called the rudraksha tree. And rudra is the, rudra is the name of Shiva. Rudraksha is meaning tears of Shiva. So these are the tears of Shiva. It's very sweet. So a bracelet has 27. Some have 54. This says 108. They all add up to nine, which is a powerful spiritual number. The Buddhists in Tibet use ox bones, yak bones sometimes. And they also use lotus seed and uh, sandalwood. You know? So they're made of many different things. The way it works is you have a guru bead or a, a meru bead, mountain bead or guru bead. So you start here and you hold it between the thumb and first finger the first stone after the meru or guru bead. And you do this motion where you use your thumb to draw the, the rudrakshas in towards yourself like that. And you can program it in a variety of different ways. So you can do pranayama, like breathing techniques. So every time you finish a cycle of breath, you go to the next bead. Uh, I use it for mantra. So if you have a mantra, like the Buddhists use Om Mane Padme Hum, among many others. I use Om Namah Shivaya or a variety of others. And every time you say the mantra once, you do the beat. This is called Japa meditation. The practice of Japa means to repeat. It only works though if you keep this up all day. And in the beginning, you won't be able to like, you'll have a time when you do it. Like Japa practice is between 3.30 to 4 o'clock. Like that's cool. But you want to have your beads on you. So when you're in the grocery store, like at Trader Joe's, you're in line. You're going, oh, money, pad me home. Oh, money, pad. And what it does is it's like an anchor. Every time your mind drifts away, Yo, Kyler, it draws you back. Do you need anything before I smoke out the bathroom? Uh, no, I'm sure. Just give you a little, just a little privacy over there. No, no, don't. Sorry, can okay. for a um, Yes. Did that help, Abby? Yes, I, I missed the last thing you said, but... Oh, yes. Um, the Om Mane Padme Hom, for instance, these mantras have a certain vibration. You don't really need to know what they mean. The vowels, much like Hebrew, Hebrew and Sanskrit are two languages that use vowels to create certain neurological effects in the body. So, for instance, if you say lam, lam, like the tongue hitting the roof of the mouth stimulates your cosageal plexus. It just does that. So these words have a way of programming your neurology and your energy 
in more esoteric terms, they have a spiritual vibration that keeps you in that state. You know, if you mindlessly do it in the beginning, it won't really help. Like you need to really kind of focus in the beginning. And once you get a momentum, it chants itself. Yes. Cool. Thank you. I'm going to head out because it's late here, but thank you everyone. This was really wonderful. I'll be back. So good to see you, Abby. Welcome to the family. Thank you. Claire's Claire's our our mom, our big sister. She holds space for everyone. Just smiling at you, giving you Shakti Pats. Aww. (laughs) Thank you. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Uh, Is it Sean that you raised your hand? And then Corey? Yeah, but it was I wanted to add something. But before she left, I was just going to say, like, for me, like, I have a personal mantra that I use, um, which, um, I mean, I feel comfortable enough to share because I feel like it's something that everyone should know. It's um, I'm strong, I'm gentle, I'm smart, I'm wise, I'm brave, I'm cautious, I'm in control of my own body, I surrender to the universe, I embrace positivity, I accept negativity, I hold neutrality, and I am balanced. And I feel like those are very strong concepts that I hold dear to myself because it's something that I need to learn with myself, but it is something that is a basis for all things to work cohesively. Good, good, good. Those are Shuddha Vikalpas, Sean. Very nicely done. Their concept you have aligned with the truth. Good. You have my applause. I can't even remember like four of those. <laughs> it, it's like hard. I have them written. <laughs> I have them written on my mirror. So good, Sean. And uh, Heather, I love that thought about how self-hatred is as false as self-adoration. And they're both two sides of the same coin, selfness. Nice, Heather. Beautiful. Corey, did you want to, did you want to share? I do. Um, hi, everybody. I'm fairly new. Can you hear me? Corey, I saw you come here at 6.30. I saw your name <laughs> pop up. I was like, oh, Corey. <laughs> I'm so all over the place. I have a job and it's just my schedule's going off a different time zone so it's hard like keeping track of all the time zones i'm in central so and what's going on um but i'm glad that i got to be a part with everybody and finally catch up and catch up to you always coming at the tail end um but i just had a broad overreaching question i'm kind of at a spiritual crossroads right now um and i just want to know when when do you know that you like you know hit hit the next chapter or hit the next milestone in your spiritual journey um I've been kind of like experimenting with different paths as far as like um, hoodoo. I'm from New Orleans. Um, um, and now I'm learning once now that I've crossed you, I've been researching Hinduism as well. And that resonates with me as well. Um, but I and just to share with you, I've had like three profound experiences in my life. Um, one doing shrooms, one through meditating and one in a dream. Oh. And both was like... Um, the same place where I skimmed the surface of something, but it wasn't even the surface. It was like the reflection of the surface. Um, so I just want to know what, like, I know I should keep going right now. I'm in a trough. Um, and I have been meditating, but I'm still eating right and everything. So how do you know when you've reached the next step? Yeah. Oh, Corey, great question. I'm going to disappoint you, unfortunately. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) I'm really going to disappoint you, but I'm going to say that there's no steps. There's not a little (sighs) at all. I'm sorry. But you can be straight up like, it's so counterintuitive. A person can be straight up like eating the heaviest, densest things, like just 
horrible, like no spiritual practice whatsoever. And then one day become perfectly enlightened. Meanwhile, a person who's <laughs> practicing every single day, waking up at 4am, counting on their mala beads, takes a lifetime to get into enlightenment <laughs> because mm-hmm. here's the thing. I will say this. It's definitely not linear. That's as best as like, for sure, it's not a linear path. It might be a spiral path relatively. I was going to say that. Yeah, mm-hmm. that might be like how it feels like, okay, you're practicing, you're practicing, you're practicing, something comes up, a pattern came up, and you notice now you're back to where you started, but it's a spiral. So now you've returned to that point, but you have more tools so you can handle it better now. And then that's mm-hmm. a sign of progress. So one way you can gauge your progress, Corey, is in the world. Like when you're mm-hmm. with people, like how much are you reacting, you know, mm-hmm. um, how much are you allowing previous patterns and reactions to govern your behaviors with others? You can never know how far you are spiritually um, with yourself, like in your own meditation. You can only know it in the realm of action with other people doing your job, you know? How much bliss mm-hmm. are you experiencing there? All of that to say, though, there are periods of time where it will be dry. You'll have dry spells. There are no blisses. There's no spiritual highs, you know? Mm-hmm. And those might be a sign of spiritual maturity. Mm. Um, so you can't say that bliss is an indicator. Sometimes it's not though. For me, it Mm. is for me. I feel like when I'm chasing bliss, I don't get it. When I'm feeling bliss, I'm in the space, but all of that to say, this is such an idiosyncratic and subjective journey that to prescribe any way of identifying I've leveled up or I'm on a new, um, step or it's, it's, it's highly unproductive. I will say this though, Corey, all that separates you from knowing what you truly are is one insight. Mm -hmm. Your enlightenment is as close to you now as your next breath, as this very breath that you are taking because you are already that. So the quarry that needs to become enlightened doesn't actually exist. So the idea of a progression is also illusory. Mm, okay. I would say it's like a, it feels like, you know, when you find the answer to a riddle and it's just so simple, you you know, you feel kind of dumb on the tail end. I feel like a lot of things are like that. Like um, when you're inspired or like people that are, you know, praised as geniuses and everything, it usually is like they, they got the answer to the riddle and it's the most simplest thing, whether it be you're, you're trying to find the path to your concept of success. It always is the most simple thing that's just in the tail end. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, they say, you know, you know, you got it when it causes uproarious laughter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You feel silly, but thank you so much. Thank you, Corey, for your practice, for your beautiful, authentic, sincere question from a true seeker. I meet a lot of people who are so excited about this path, but it will never do anything, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's okay. That's fine. Wherever anybody is, is just fine. But I'm so grateful that you're practicing. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad that I found a group of people that are on the same or, you know, that I can bounce off and, you know, hear people different perspectives. I feel like that's very important. Yeah. Joey, mm-hmm. Joey. as he's demonstrating, will always be here for you. And, All right. you know, Claire, Roxanne, Mikey, Austin, like we, we're just, we've been here like for a while, just hold, you know, and I'm so mm-hmm. happy that all our new friends are here, like Marley and Heather and Sean. You know, Mm -hmm. Kelsey, who just joined us, and Iman, and now you, Corey, and Joey, you know, we'll always have this space and it will always be full of the people that just always have your back, you know, such sincere, sincere practitioners here. Awesome. So happy. Glad to get to meet everybody and looking forward to getting to know everybody. 
Yes. This feels like a nice note to um, close our satsang and go and have some dreaming, huh? Mm-hmm. Yes. Unless anybody's got any more burning questions, I'll definitely stay. But I, have I just wanted to say... Oh, sorry. Uh, After you. Oh, uh, I was going to say to the, the person who was just speaking, um, you know, I feel the same way too about, you know, you're always looking for a sign that you know you're going in the right direction. And when you don't see it, you feel discouraged and you start, you know, stop, you start like not doing what you were doing because you feel like, you know, you're not getting these signs from the universe. But it's about just being in tune and living in the present moment. And you start feeling and seeing those signs and synchronicities that, you know, just makes sense. And that's how you really know that you are on that path. So you may not have, you know, physically see an angel in front of you like, hey, you're going the right way. But, you know, maybe you'll see a number or you'll, you'll hear a song or somebody will you have like some weird divine, you know, um, meet with some person that just it touches you in a certain way. And that's how, you know, like, you know, you're going in, in the right path. Mm-hmm. Kind of encourages you along the way. Good, good. Joey. Yeah, I was going to ask, by the way, that was touching. Um. What are some perspective shifting books? Because I'm honestly kind of tired of staring at my phone all day. I feel like picking a book is going to be better. What are you into? Uh, I've been on an insane spiritual journey. Literally, if it's informative, I it, the religion doesn't matter. I feel like they all sort of have revelating perspectives. Um. Only when they have Korean time stuff. Um, I've read The Power of Now. Right now, I have The Last Guide to Self Help. Yeah. Um, fantasy. Uh, yeah. I'm just dropping some stuff in the chat, just like kind of spiritual. Um, I can't really hear him because he's in a bathroom. Um, but it's, but are you asking about like a spiritual foundation? Like books to, um. Oh, he just actually. Okay. I think Tantra Illuminated is a really powerful book. It's super heavy because it's got a lot of stuff in there. Um, very powerful book, though. It's got a lot of high octane spiritual ideas. Because Christopher Wallace is a scholar, you know, and he has. <laughs> are you enjoying that, Claire? High octane. <laughs> Yeah, Christopher Wallace is a scholar and he um, has synthesized a lot of the great uh, traditions um, of Shaiva Tantra and he's made this little book. Yes, I hope you'll enjoy them, Marley. They're, they're, I'm, you know, Ram Das's work, I love. He's got such a pure vibration and Be Here Now is like a picture book and it's got a lot of practical tools in it. I love Be Here Now a lot. Um, Christopher Wallace is a scholar, so it's a very academically rigorous book, but very readable. He wrote it for people that aren't like stuffy intellectuals, you know, it's very readable, um, but big, thick book. Uh, I love it though. What else? Um, these are great books to get started with, you know, I wouldn't say Hinduism, but with yoga, I think pick up a copy of the Yoga Sutra, you know, um, Yoga Sutra, Swami Satchid Ananda's copy is, uh, translation is probably the most accessible. I personally like Raja Yoga by uh, Vivekananda. Um, These are good books. Um, You know what? If you want something really heavy, yeah, the Dalai Lama is great. 
If you want something like really like hardcore philosophy, you can try Atma Bodha by Shankaracharya. This is like probably the heaviest I can give you right now. Um, that's, can you put it in the chat for me? Yeah, I'm putting it right there. Shankaracharya translated by Swami Nikilananda, who is a monk. Um, because Atma Bodha is an eighth century text by Shankaracharya. It's kind of the core, core message of non-duality. And so you're kind of going to the molten liquid center. It's also been translated by a monk from the Vedanta society. So it's very genuine. The gospel oh, okay. Ramakrishna. This will give you a sense of what Indian spirituality is like. So the gospel of Sri Ramakrishna is like this big. Um, and it's like a really mega book. You can get the abridged version, of course. Uh, but it was a great Indian saint who practiced Islam, Christianity, and all the paths of Hinduism, found them all to be equally legit, and so teaches from a highly syncretic point of view. Um, he's a great master, uh, Sri Ramakrishna, and this book is unlike any other book in the world, because, for instance, Jesus, he was a great master, but there was no one with him to document what he said. You know, Paul was writing 40 years after he died. John was writing 150 years after he died. So I feel like yeah. a lot of people would have been able to twist what Paul said. Yeah, you know, like Paul sent out a lot of letters. And, you know, Paul's intention was you get a letter, you have a party, and you read his letter aloud to your Christian following. You know, like that's what Paul's letters were like in all around, you know, the world where he was doing his work. Um, yes, good night, Sean, good night. So Ramakrishna is special because he's the only person. Ah, may peace and love be with you too, Sean. May you be happy always. Blessings. Yes, but Ramakrishna's book is so special because there was a man named M, Mahendranath or something. He goes by M. But he kept a diary and hung out with Ramakrishna all the time. So he's like Diodorus Siculus, you know, Alexander the Great's historian. He just followed Ramakrishna and wrote and wrote and wrote. And so Swami Nikalananda translated it now. And it's a great thing. So awesome. Yeah. Awesome. That's almost as direct as it gets. Yeah, it is. Bro, that book, Ramakrishna's book will like, like it, it's as if he's speaking to you. I've never held a book in my hand that has vibrated with such spiritual potency as like the Quran, as the Bible, as Ramakrishna's gospel, you know, as some of Rumi's poetry, but like it's up there. Definitely up there. <laughs> oh my God. I've been looking for a book that like that. Yeah, enjoy it. What about uh, Swami Yogananda? I haven't heard you mention him. Yeah, I, I like autobiography of a yogi and uh, Paramahansa Yogananda has definitely been so instrumental in my journey. I love him deeply and I have almost everything from him. <laughs> I have God Talks to Arjuna. I have um, The Divine Romance. You know, I have almost every... Sorry, it's a little buzz somewhere remind me what the book is uh you know autobiography of a yogi is like the spiritual classic you know like that's the one that came out and the world was like autobiography of a yogi came out the same time that nuclear bombs were invented kind of gets the idea that like you know there's a balance because it's kind of like the spiritual you know bombshell of the century it turned a lot of people on to yoga and i definitely recommend that it's by paramahansa yogananda it is so genuine and it gives you such an ideal picture of what an Indian yogi's life looks like. 
you know, really authentic work. I bought the book after I watched the movie. It was really oh, like wait. an eye opener. It was it was so good that I was like I was super devoted to my practice for like a whole week, and then it kind of went away after I, after the week was over. Like it kind of went back down to neutral. But the first week, I was like, oh my god! Like I remembered who I was and what I'm here for, and I had this, you oh. know. <laughs> Yeah, so nice. I I love Yogananda, and you know what? I don't really read him as much as I used to. I'm now I hang out with Ramakrishna and Vivekananda a little more, and I think where I am in my path, I gravitate towards the more Advaita Vedanta people. But I remember once I was meditating, I got this profound sense that like this, this voice kind of said, "Yogananda is very proud of the work you're doing," and I was just like, "Ah,、oh, it was such a wonderful experience." So I love him deeply. Yes, please. That's awesome. You got the gratitude. So great. I, yeah. Tell me, my friends. It was nice talking to you. Yes, it was truly a pleasure. Why is Claire giggling and cackling over there, like Kali swooning? <laughs> 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 you have an incredible amount of intelligence. No, 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 nothing. It's Claire. Claire is truly the frequency holder of this whole satsang. She just sits there and smiles knowingly. She saw it. <laughs> <laughs> never, never. I, but I enjoy you so much, Claire. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here, everybody. I wish you all the most beautiful sleep. Oh, Mikey! Thank you for your share today. That was really, really profound, and I think important. You know, Sufis really worthy. All right. Good night.、Um, sleep beautifully. Have a wonderful、yes. sleep. Say again, Marley. Have a wonderful sleep. Thank you, Marley. You too. Bye, bye, Roxanne. Bye, bye, Kelsey. Sorry we didn't get to meet, but I'm happy that you're here. Bye bye Claire. Bye bye Mikey, and Iman. Wishing you all the best on tomorrow's five thirty practice. <laughs> you got this. And bye bye Corey. Bye bye. Good night.